You were at CES. I was. Now, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. So this is the second year. Okay. And you came on the show last year and talked about CES, right? I think this might be our third or fourth uh, annual CES discussion. <laughs> and I think the first two I didn't go. And we were like, oh, we should go. And <laughs> I, then last year I went for the first time. My, It is absolutely a John Gruber, the talk show tradition that like mid-January, I have someone on, we talk about CES. And then I say, you know what? Damn it, next year I'm going. <laughs> and then next year comes and goes, and I don't go. You almost need to start planning it now. And it's funny because they've already changed the website over to 2017 CES. Right. I wonder if they have a script that does that. It, it was like the next day, boom. Yeah. Their website's already turned over. Uh, it was great, man. I love it. It was super fun. It's it's absolute insanity. I mean, you go to Vegas a lot. It is, and I have I had not been to Vegas in ten years actually before last year's CES, and yeah. it is absolute chaos. I mean, there are two hundred thousand people there who do not belong. They are. <laughs> They are from it's it's kind of neat because basically what happens is at the beginning of the year, you know, not everyone, but a a lot two hundred thousand people who work in tech and in adjacent industries are all living in one city for a week. So you run into people who you know you would not expect to see. I totally like randomly ran into a guy in a restaurant. We were both waiting to eat at the bar, and we ended up eating lunch together who's like was partially responsible for the creation of the mp3 uh <laughs> random random stuff like that and then you're like reading slack and your coworkers are like hey you know that reed hastings is giving a talk across you know in, in another place in vegas i'm like no i didn't know that you know there's there's just so much going on it's it's absolute madness and chaos but uh if you can tolerate it and i guess enough trips to tokyo have now made me totally uh chilled out around massive crowds it's really cool it's very special i think the crowds they wouldn't that wouldn't bother me uh i can take crowds in small doses you know i mean i go to disney a couple times a year and stuff like that i i what i like though with if you go somewhere like that is if you can take the time to spend some time somewhere away from the crowd every day yeah, where it gets to you i don't mind the actual crowd where it gets to you is that the the infrastructure is just way beyond capacity. I mean, th- people are talking about waiting an hour just to get on the monorail, That's just to crazy. get into the station. Or, you know, you go, you want to go anywhere to eat lunch, forget it, like you're waiting. Or um, th- they have this shuttle bus that goes from one, because it basically takes up both the Sands and the Las Vegas convention centers. And they have right. a shuttle bus, a free shuttle bus that goes between them. It can't be more than a mile. And you know what? It's, it's not far. No, and I've walked it, and it's totally walkable. I mean, there's bar- barely any sidewalk, but uh, this bus trip takes like 40 minutes because there's so much traffic because everyone else is in a cab trying to get between these places, and it's just madness. Um, last year, I stayed at the fairly far south end of the Strip, and this year, one of my priorities was stay somewhere further closer to the action so at least you could walk from south is the airport side right like down by mandalay bay yeah mandalay Bay. it's funny in my in my head i feel like that's up like that's up the strip oh, down, yeah. down the strip is down by like the stratosphere wind. yeah but it's the other way around right right yeah and so that was useful although a lot of the stuff um a lot of the like official press conferences are at mandalay bay that's but, crazy though. It's like so far away. I know. I'm I'm in a fortunate position where I could basically 
pick um, you know courts where I work qz.com is uh, you know we're we're still small enough that we can be picky about what we cover so I don't have to actually go and live blog an NVIDIA press conference or something like that. Um, no one's telling me I need to do that. So I actually got to skip all those official press conference type things. So I didn't actually have to go down to Mandalay Bay this time. But yeah, a lot, you- a lot of the stuff, a lot of the action, like the good stuff's going on at Metro, uh, Cosmopolitan, at the uh, at the at the Win and Venetian. So you really want to be hanging out uh, toward kind of center to north yeah. strip most of the time. So was anybody else from Quartz there, or were you the only representative of Quartz there? Um, no, several. Uh, I think there were four of us this year, two from our ad side, and then uh, my colleague Mike Murphy, who's a reporter who writes about uh, – we we have a, a beat called Machines with Brains, and it's drones, robots, AI, and that kind of stuff. And he was very busy. Mm. There was a lot uh, – although he, he – uh, <laughs> he came to CES with a cold. You can't do that. <laughs> because <laughs> you're going to get sick by the end, but you can't show up with a cold. So I, f- I felt bad about that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, he was there with me and we were we were basically just, you know, doing meetings, hitting the show floor. The show floor is is comically extensive. Like you can walk. I, I you know, I had my Apple watch with me. So Wednesday was my was my busiest day. I think I walked over 14 miles on Wednesday. Whereas on an average day, I probably walk like six to eight. Yeah, that's a um, lot. 14, anything over ten is a. Is I did twenty seven thousand steps, so that was that was pretty crazy in boots too, uh, which was dumb. But it, it was yeah. cool. So the, it's a recurring uh, theme, and I, I know we say this every year, but that everybody goes to CES, quote unquote. Everybody goes, but and then all all the writers, they all say they hate it. Everybody just as soon as it it hasn't even started yet, and you, Twitter is filled with you know people on, in our racket saying how much they hate it, uh, which always makes me think, well then why do you go? You know, like why does everybody go to this thing that they hate? But I'm exactly with you. My temptation to go is it, it, it's because I obviously I could write whatever the hell I want, so I'm not going, and I can skip whatever I want. So. Well, I understand that the hatred comes from people who, if you get an assignment from an editor and they're like, here, here's your list of press conferences to go to figure out what's new from, you know, LG and Samsung and, you know, whoever. And it all just starts to blur together because everybody is making the exact same things, five, five inch Android phones and tablets and curved OLED TVs. And it all just blurs together. And then you've got a schlep from one end to the other. And it's got to be backbreaking if you, you know, can't pick and choose where you go. One of the things we we struggled with was we shot a video. Mike Mike put on this exoskeleton suit that's designed to age you to like a hundred years old or something like that, and do various things. It had like VR goggles built in and and uh, things that would make your muscles uh, that basically make your body move more slowly, and they would affect your vision and all this stuff. And uh, we took this video of him in this suit, and then we realized that we literally didn't have the ability to upload the video to Dropbox. Like we <laughs> like what I'm not gonna tether on my cell phone and do it. Our hotel Wi Fi sucked. We couldn't do it. It's like, okay, we almost have to go to a Starbucks and I wonder if the press room had a free Ethernet connection. We didn't actually go in the press room because it, it seemed like it was uh kind of a dump. But uh that actually that would may have solved our problem. But it's yeah. just it's stuff like that where you're you're just completely out of your element. Uh but it's amazing. Like you go 
uh, one of the things we did is we scraped the list of exhibitors and just did some very basic text analysis to see if there's any anything interesting we could find. Um, one thing that was was cool was over 500 of the companies had the word Shenzhen in the title of the company. Huh. Like, there are aisles and aisles and aisles of t- tiny booths with one or two people from from Shenzhen, from China, who come to America once a year, and there they are. And I got a great little tour from a you know a, a little old lady of her line of perfect GoPro knockoffs, and you know she's like giving me a demo of these things. Uh, the same case, same size, you know, looks exactly like a GoPro, but it's sixty dollars or something like that. And was, was she was she saying it looks like a GoPro? Or yeah, was that so she was mentioning the word GoPro. I, I yeah yeah totally like oh, it's the same case as a GoPro. <laughs> Actually, one of the booths, um, you probably saw this. One of the booths, the the one of the hoverboard knockoffs was so similar to this one specific uh, kind of balance board thing that the U.S. Marshals raided it. No, I didn't and, see this. Oh, yeah. I think Bloomberg got tipped off because I think some other sites got tipped off too, and they videotaped it. And basically, uh, the U.S. Marshals raided a booth. They, they confiscated all the, the product and shut these guys down. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there are, there are a lot of knockoff-looking things, and... <clears throat> I believe the the Bloomberg uh, article interviewed someone from the the people who put together the show, and they're you know they're kind of as long as you're not uh, I forgot what the the kind of limitations are, but basically like don't be too fake. I think is the yeah. is the line. Um, so in this case, that didn't uh, it didn't work out. It's got to be such a surprise to the vendor, like because I, I, you know what I mean. It's like there's the culture of how we value knockoffs and it's so different between here and China. And it's obviously it you know, the whole concept of intellectual property isn't really like a, an institutional cultural thing over there. Uh, like there's no way that they would have, th- that had to be a complete surprise because if they would have thought it's even a possibility, they would, you know, would have dialed it back. I think so. It, it, it seemed like they were surprised. I, w- I wasn't there and I actually tried to look for the booth, but I couldn't really find it. It's, and, it wasn't really worth putting a lot of effort into, but um, that's the kind of stuff that goes on. And but meanwhile, there's like 40 different drone companies, and you know, of all shapes and sizes, um, a bunch of a bunch of companies who paid up big bucks for big booths like the size of an Intel booth from from China that you know you really haven't heard of unless you're in the TV industry. So. It was it was really fascinating. You realize uh, how insignificant you are in the world when you're at CES. Like, there's just so much stuff you you've never heard of, and there's so many people who are doing stuff that you know is similar to what you're doing, but you've never heard of before. And you walk around <laughs> exhausted, dehydrated, and uh, it's cool. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Why are you dehydrated? Couldn't you just get? Can't you get water? I guess I get, yeah I I actually um I joke about this but like I almost set calendar reminders saying okay drink water right now make sure you have lunch because then it's three o'clock and you haven't eaten lunch and you're you know falling asleep I was carrying around a kind bar in my backpack just to make sure that I, if I needed some protein I, uh, I'd still be alive I find that true I, I do I've developed the the reflexive habit of always be drinking something in Vegas 
So in the morning, yeah. <laughs> your guzzling coffee, or you know, afternoon, whenever you wake up. Uh, but then in the afternoon, it's like at any free moment, if you have an opportunity to put a water in your hand, do it. And because it's like it really, it's like in addition to you know the the dehydrating effects of alcohol, uh, uh, it, the desert air really is a thing if you're not used to it. I mean, and it really, even if you weren't, even if you don't drink alcohol, I mean, you're going to get dried out in, in Vegas. Shockingly, it was actually raining a couple of the days, which uh, which was super weird. Yeah, I remember I saw people, compl- you know, and I and that definitely makes everything worse because any temptation to walk is is decreased. People actually drive. I've been out there when it rained, and it's like people the 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 natives, you know, the, the locals, they don't know how to drive in the rain. It's it's like just it's not icy. Obviously, it's it's usually even in the winter, it's you know above freezing. Um, but the roads get a little wet, and people like are slipping and sliding, like they don't even know how to drive on wet roads. Yeah, it was that was weird, um, but it didn't get too bad. So, like, I I brought an umbrella, and I didn't have to use it. So, it was fine. It was it was interesting though, and uh, I definitely feel like going back. I'm definitely going to go back next year. From the, I'm in the position to, uh, I think that like the you know, and my advice to you would be. Um, you know, do think a little bit ahead of time and oh, plan way ahead. Like the, yeah. I booked my hotel in, I want to say November. And by then, like oh. every, every good place was sold out. You really have to do it in like August or September, whenever they open up reservations, just book it and think a little bit ahead of time about what you want, what you want to get out of it, but really save a lot of time to wing it because there's just going to be stuff that, you know, either you don't know about until you get there or... Oh. I'm always confused by just the basic schedule of CES. This is tell me if I'm wrong. I think it's it, the the convention itself, the show floor is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, and it, and it changes. Uh, it, it was different this year, though. Actually, oh. it was maybe that's I, why I'm confused. Then, yeah, I think this year it was um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But I think previous years it was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I don't know. It was definitely a day off this year to go later, I think because of the, the holiday. But but everybody who covers it, or almost everybody who covers it, comes a couple days early because there's like pre-show announcements. Like like there's like, the I don't know if they call them keynotes, but there's like, you know, big keynote addresses that happen like this week, like this year, like on Monday and Tuesday. There are press conferences and then there are keynotes and they're separate, I guess. Um, I don't know. I remember like, Steve Ballmer always did what it was like the Sunday night, right? The kickoff, up. One. yeah, the kickoff. I don't know. Like this year, there were some things we were going to go on Sunday, and then I think there may have even been some stuff Saturday or at least Sunday, uh, and we decided to to fly in on Monday and then leave Friday, and we did miss some stuff that had happened Monday, but Tuesday, like the show floor is not was not open yet, although we got in to do couple meetings um they like escorted us in and they were it was crazy like a lot of the booths were were barely half finished like the day before and people were definitely there all night working to set stuff up and it's absolutely like there's you could could get killed by a machine any second like there were just lots of stuff going on uh and then wednesday is when it was totally open and just chaos like i had a guided tour of the samsung booth but it was really not useful for any of us because there were just so many people standing between you and the refrigerator with the TV on it that you could barely even see it. It was yeah. just absolute chaos. 
Uh, and most of that stuff was at the Las Vegas Convention Center, or was it split? Like the show floor is literally split between the convention center and the sands. Uh, split, and I, I, I bet there's a some sort of theme to it. Like the so the basement of the sands <laughs> has a lot of very small booths, and that's actually one of the best things I did was I met up with a couple guys from Kickstarter, and they took me on a tour of the little like the the interesting startups that had all either done Kickstarters or were going to be doing Kickstarters. Uh, and that was actually really cool because there was a bunch of stuff I had never heard of, and it was all pretty good. Uh, there's, See, a, there's just a lot of garbage everywhere, so you have to try to find the good stuff. That's the thing that I miss about Macworld. And Macworld was, you know, and, and it's, I've said to, you know, well, it, I'll say it again next year too, but the whole reason I never got into the habit of going to CES was that it overlapped with Macworld, and I went to Macworld. Uh, and then even when Macworld, like after like Macworld's multi-year slow demise um, from being a thing to being literally nothing, started with them moving the date around, where they moved it to the end of January. And then there was the one year where they had it like Super Bowl weekend, which was stupid. Uh, I forget. It went into February, I think, before they finally pulled the plug. But even then, when it wouldn't overlap, it just felt that felt like too much. Like it felt like I don't want to go to two of these things if I don't have to, so I'll just keep going to MacWorld. But that's what one of the reasons I didn't get in the habit of it. But one of my favorite things about going to MacWorld, without question, was talking to the little booths. The little booths were always way more interesting than the big ones because usually you you get to talk to the actual principals, and there would always be you know at least a couple of booths that were like, wow, I did not even know that that was possible type products yeah one one of them i saw that was pretty cool was was a very small booth of uh a company that makes this clip-on camera that just kind of goes on your lapel and it's not recording video all day it's constantly doing image image analysis and recognition and making a text list via api of all the stuff that you've seen that day so wow that's crazy yeah, it was very cool. I actually have to write it up. I, I took some photos of it, and I'll, I'll write up a post about it. Um, but, you know, and it, it's this is the kind of thing where it's like, this is really cool technology. This could be a cool product in a couple of years or in a year, or it could be nothing. But here these guys are, you know, they got kind of a, a, a you know, a, an okay-looking booth and this really interesting technology that, uh, you know, and it's actually kind of cool, like, you know, and of course... With any uh, camera that's always on, privacy concerns, but you could maybe train it to your LinkedIn account so it could tell you who, who you're looking at at a party or something like that. Um, I don't know. It was interesting, and it was one of those things where I was like, all right, this is kind of the value of, of coming to a show like this because I never probably would have met these people otherwise, and uh, it's not like you're standing in the gigantic Intel booth not wonder, you know, wondering what you're doing there. Uh, so that was pretty cool. I saw there was an episode of, uh, I mean, it's not a new idea, but uh, the BBC show Sherlock. I think it was Sherlock. But there was like a uh, billionaire magnate uh, bad guy sort of person. And he had like heads, he had just had regular wire rim glasses. But when they showed his first person perspective, it would instantly give him a sort of profile of anybody whose face he was looking at, you know, their name and, you know, some facts about them. And I feel like we're, I feel like that is like, it's still science fiction, but it's 
very, very near-term science fiction. Like, it's going to happen, you know, within the next decade. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of... I'm I'm always the guy who wants... I want the feed of uh, random Instagram photos that I'm in the background of. I do, too. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, you know, I feel like we as a society and culture have just... We're already wrapping our heads around the fact that everything is on camera all the time. Totally. You know, and it's, you know, it's like, and some of the people who are adjusting the slowest are uh, the ones who really should be adjusting the quickest, you know, like the way that when police officers have some kind of incident and it's all caught on tape and you see that it's just absolutely horrible police work. uh, It's actually, you know, to me, it's it's helping to make our society better. I mean, there's obviously trade-offs, big, big trade-offs, and there's some definite downsides to the lack of privacy, but... Uh, I think that specifically has has proven to be very powerful over the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. I, you know, was, what was weird, though, was looking it up and seeing a guy wearing Google Glass for the first time in over a year. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. That you know was what? very weird. It's you, was there any, How many people did you see at CES wearing Google Glass? Because I feel like if there's anywhere left that people are still we- pretending that Google Glass is going to be a thing, it's at CES. I saw two in a row, and that was it. Like two in the basement of the Palms, or Palms, the basement of the Sands uh, Convention yeah. Center, and that was it. The whole show, two guys, and the one guy was like tall and large, and it was just uh, kind of weird. Um, but th- that was the last time I'd seen. Sometimes in New York, you see them when you're walking around over by the Google offices, but uh, otherwise, I haven't seen one in over at least over a year. All right, let's hold this thought. I still have more CES stuff to talk about, but I mean, I mean, might as well fit in our first break here and tell you about our good friends at Wealthfront. Wealthfront is a low-cost, automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It works 24-7 to manage your portfolio, keeping it diversified, customized to your personal risk profile, and it optimizes its trading behavior to keep your tax bill low, all without charging commissions. Uh, Whether you've got millions of dollars to invest or you're just starting out and you want to start a a regular program to save for your retirement, uh, Wealthfront is a great fit for you. So where do you go to find out more? Go to their website. It's wealthfront.com slash the talk show. Just a couple of the points here. More or less, Wealthfront is is an automated service that replaces like a personal financial manager. And the reason you might want to consider that is that algorithms can actually do pretty good with this just by putting your money into index funds. It's not really Wealthfront. You can read all the details on their website, but they're not really about like trying to magically pick individual companies that their stock is going to go up. That's really, really tough. And most people who try that don't win. The way to win in the long term is to go with index funds. And that's what Wealthfront mostly does. Uh, But they charge way, way less than a personal financial manager. Instead of um, uh, 1% to 3% of the money under management, they charge a fraction of 1%. And they don't charge anything up to $10,000. And for listeners of the show who go to wealthfront.com slash the talk show, they actually raise that up to 15000 So the first $15,000 you put in there just to see how it works and see if you know it, it, it works for you and your family, uh, you don't pay any fees at all. So you really can't beat that. Last but not least, for compliance purposes, I have to read this to you. Um, Wealthfront is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC, 
this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. Uh, so here's uh, – so you didn't get there till Monday, you're saying. That's so right. Monday what did night. you? Do, so what did you do on Tuesday? Tuesday, I uh, Tuesday I woke up too early and got breakfast, and then we went to this meeting where uh, Mike wore the exoskeleton, and it was. Uh, How did ma- you set that? How did you set that meeting up? That's one of my worries: is that I would go there and without having set anything up, and I don't have like a, I don't have anybody who sets stuff up for me, and then I'd get out there and I'd just you know end up playing blackjack all day. See, that would be fun. I would like to play blackjack with you all day because, as we'll discuss in a minute, I did not play any blackjack, uh, so which is which is not excusable. I don't see um, how that. See that, that again. I don't see how that's. Possible. I know. I know. So, so here's here's the worst part of CES. When you sign up for a press badge, your email gets given to all the three thousand or whatever two thousand companies that have uh, signed up to exhibit. And you get emails from about half of them. I'm not even exaggerating. Like I this year, I was smart and I I did the Gmail thing where you can add a plus sign and yeah. then so I made it, you know, Dan plus CES at QZ.com. so I could filter. They're now all filtering into the toilet. Like I'm not right. getting the people are still sending emails there. Good for them, but I'm not seeing any of them. Um, so you get you're, you're God, overwhelmed. You know I know about that weeks. trick. I just want to just I mean hold you hold you there. Is that yeah. It instantly popped into my head. I mean, and it, it's like if I was the type of dirtbag who ran like a PR. Well, PR people aren't dirtbags, but if I was about to start sending email to those people, I would I would write like a little script that takes any Gmail address with the plus and take out the plus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it would be so easy to algorithmically filter that out. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some a couple people remarked on it. They were like, "Oh, clever, clever with the plus sign or whatever." Um, I mean, I get a lot of email from PR people as it is, and I'm actually, I would say, pretty um, fair about just asking people not to send me certain yeah. types of email. I, f- I find it so hard, like at a, a convention or conference or something like that. I, I'm terrible at staying on top of my email on a normal day when I'm at my desk, but it's really I always fall behind. And so to have have them making it even harder to to just keep an eyeball on what's coming into my email would be would be terrible. Uh, the problem for me is that I've now been at inbox zero for four years, um, which means all day I'm constantly deleting emails. Uh, I can't, I don't let them pile up anymore. So anyway, so I would get, you know, invited to, uh, everything from like tours to meetings to press conferences and that kind of stuff. And I accepted, I think five or six of the, I don't know, roughly thousand that I got. And, um, I say, I, and those I say, came, and but just to be clear, those came before, long before the show even started because it's it starts when you actually register with CES, like in November or whatever. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you know, and and some of them are like party invites. Uh, and the, uh, some of the stuff doesn't come until um, you know the week before or a couple of days before. But a lot of the companies are. You know, trying to set up as many meetings as possible. You can also kind of check what what topics you're interested in, and I think I was probably a little too excited about checking lots of different topics that I should not have, like audio. You know, you check off audio, and then every headphone company is emailing you asking for a meeting and that kind of stuff. So, 
Um, I think next year I'll probably be more selective about about that and do even fewer meetings because they're, they're you know if you need to get a last minute meeting they're they're pretty much always available. Uh, the stuff that the stuff that's really cool is going to be kind of hard to access anyway, and those are the people who are least likely to set stuff up with you ahead of time, unless you're, you know, whatever the Verge or something like that, right. um, who get first dibs on a lot of stuff. Uh, so yeah, I set all that stuff up, and so what else? I Tuesday, you know, I had a couple of meetings and. Uh, I had lunch and then I went to uh, a dinner probably and then met up with people. Oh, Tuesday I went to a party and probably stayed out late. And yeah, and uh, that's when I saw Rupert Murdoch. That was kind of interesting. And so where was he? He was just walking down the hall of the wind. Huh. That's where he stayed. So I actually wrote this article. So, so one thing I didn't know. Uh, and I, I thought it was going to be—I thought it was going to be a bigger surprise to people than it turned out to be. No one really cared. But um, so Eddie Q was at CES. Eddie Did Q, you, you wrote an article on this? Yes. Oh, I didn't see it. Eddie Q it was at CES speaking at Rupert Murdoch's private mini conference, oh. which he holds in his suite every year. It's two days, and he brings in like a fantastic list of people. Um, and it's not for the public or anything. It's for News Corp and Fox executives. And this year, the people who were scheduled to present range from the CEO of Snapchat to uh, Sundar from Google, the CEO of Google, uh, Eddie Q from Apple, and uh, a bunch, just a bunch of other, like the guy from Salesforce.com, a bunch of other really high-level, uh, Benedict Evans from Andreessen Horowitz, some some startup people, and... Um, so that's cool. And I, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, there's this whole huge CES thing going on. Meanwhile, in Rupert Murdoch's suite, there's like the best, you know, <laughs> one of the best conference lineups in the world. And it's just for like a handful of top uh, executives who work for him. Huh. But that's the kind of thing you can do at CES because so many of those people are there anyway. Right. Uh, although it was interesting because, of course, Apple somewhat famously does not have an official presence at CES. Uh, my guess is that, you know, some people from Apple go just to kind of look at stuff. They'd be kind of silly not to. Um, oh, I, I know for a fact that it, and even when Macworld was a thing and it was coincident that there were people from the product marketing group who went every year just to do the due diligence of walking around, you know. And and the question was always whether, you know, what, what they would put on their badge. And most of the time, I think they just, you know, would officially go and they'd have Apple on the badge. And if people wanted to talk them up, they'd do it. They just didn't, you know, and it, it wasn't real cloak and dagger stuff. They just, you know, but they were there to just see what else, you know, the industry's doing. Yeah, I mean, it'd be, it'd be foolish not to. I, I think that someone was telling me that they saw a couple Apple people, um, you know, this year just walking around um but i wasn't there for that yeah i wouldn't even be surprised if it's actually like multiple teams you know like different yeah you know not even in coordination you know the product marketing people there are just there in general but maybe you know like notebook engineers are there just to look at all the crazy all the crazy notebooks that are you know being put together yeah i would and then you get to be in vegas right and maybe run into rupert murdoch he was he looked uh, he looked good he was wearing a nice suit and some uh, sneakers walking down the street Walking down the hallway outside of a party that I was leaving. So it was just like in the hotel, you mean? Like a hallway? Yes, in the wind outside of one of their like nightclub-y type 
venues. Huh. Crazy. Yeah. What, t- what mean, time of day was that? Uh, this was around, I think, 11 p.m. or 10, 10 something p.m. Hmm. See, that's why you go to CES. Totally. Yeah, actually, I'll I'll never forget one of my when I worked at Forbes. Um, now, almost ten years ago, one of my colleagues wrote an article about. Actually, it may have been CES uh, ten years ago, where she was randomly at a booth when Bill Gates showed up to look at the booth, and what an interesting, cool experience that was. Like, can you imagine being the the tiny booth uh, operator, and then yoink, Bill Gates walks up and says, "Hey, give me a demo." <laughs> I have to find that article. I wonder if Forbes has archives that. Have you ever have you ever worked at trade show booth? Uh, I don't think so. My when I was a kid, my dad I think had a booth or like a part of one at some point for a store he was involved in. But I I never had to work a booth. I did when I worked at uh, Bare Bones. So oh, cool for BB Edit and I guess Mailsmith even at the time. But we you know we'd have a booth at MacWorld and it is grueling. It it and sometimes though it's. It it could be like I don't know. It's like three in the afternoon, and you've been on your feet since nine, and you've been making the same pitch over and over again. And you know, I, I repetition has never been good for me. I mean, not that I'm not good at it, but I get bored quickly. But then all of a sudden, like you, you meet somebody, and somebody will tell you this amazing story of how like BB Edit, you know, saved their website or something like that. And they take and they just want to thank you, and you're just like, oh my god, that's amazing. You made my day. You know, let me go get yeah. let me go get Rich Siegel, and you can tell it to his face. That's great. Um, but boy, it is hard. It is really hard. And you can just see it like now it's just it's just a funny thing to have un, under my belt as experience. And now whenever I'm at a trade show and I walk around, I I have a, a sympathy for every single person doing those, you know, working those booths that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, it's grueling and you have like uh trade show approved vendors that you have to do everything with and <laughs> you know, good luck there's two you know, twenty minute line for the bathroom and Yeah. So what else? What else did you do uh at CES? Oh, I hung I hung out with uh with Walt Mossberg. That was that was a highlight. I saw that. That's I when s- you were uh <laughs> I saw texting a pa- me. Yeah. I saw a periscope. This is this is this is my perspective. It's oh, I think it might have been like maybe like twelve thirty at night, East Coast time. So it would have been maybe like nine thirty Vegas. That sound about right? I think so, yeah. And I saw somebody who I follow on Twitter from The Verge uh, tweeted a, a link to Periscope that they're periscoping from inside uh, a blinged out, a crazy blinged out limo that Neelai had rented for some unknown reason. <laughs> and I thought, I got to see this because I don't, you know, I know what a regular limo looks like. I got to see what like a special, you know, call attention to it limo looks like. So I put the Periscope on and it's a Neelai and a couple of other people I knew from The Verge. And the inside of this limo, it really was like it was like all the leftover neon from old Las Vegas was all inside <laughs> this limo, basically. And then it, the periscope is panning around, and here's Verge staffers, and I was just about ready to you know disconnect because it's a boy in them. And then I see a guy, and I was like, "Holy shit, that one guy looks like Dan Fromer." And I was like, "Who is that?" And then they're like, "And we've got Dan from Quartz," and I'm like, "Holy shit, it is Dan Fromer." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow!" Now I was like, "Interested." Now I have a friend in the limo. Now I'm interested. And I noticed it seemed to me like everybody was a little tipsy, and you were like just totally normal. <laughs> and then, oh. <laughs> the, and, and then it it got crazier because then it got to the far side of this. It was a truly massive limo, and then all of a sudden, Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher were in there. Yeah, they were riding in the uh, in the back seat. 
and I was fascinated. <laughs> what were you guys doing? You guys were, were on your way from like one end of the strip to the other? Um, we were all at a dinner that uh, they have um, usually the last night or one, you know, one of the last nights every year, a kind of a press dinner. And uh, I guess we were all going to the Cosmopolitan where there was a Twitter Spotify party. And rather than taking four cabs, Neil, I think, threw his hands up and said, let's get a limo. <laughs> so I just went in the limo. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was it. I mean, it wasn't uh, – I don't think it was preplanned or anything. It right. just happened. It was funny, though. <laughs> I, it's, but it's the sort of thing that what, happens when like, everybody's Like, what do you say on a periscope when they when they put the camera in your face? Oh, I never know what to say. I never – I don't know what to say. No, it was terrible. It was funny, though. I am. I'm like. There were like 300 people watching. I enjoy Periscope. I but I'm. It 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 requires a certain personality that I I I am not in possession of to really be good at it. I haven't done. I don't think I've ever done one. The other problem sure. I have with it, and last time I tried using it, I think I tried using it when the Pope was in town here in Philly, and I was doing some periscopes walking around at the crazy ways that they'd shut down it enormous major thoroughfares in philly which created this it was awesome it, but it's like you had these like six seven lane streets that were entirely free of cars not even like parked cars it was great um but the problem for me is i've got so many twitter followers that i easily overflow the the limits of periscope even you know just for something like that hmm. did you uh did you recently join snapchat i did that was me that was you. Yeah. Okay. I was like, oh, that's weird. I do you understand Snapchat? No, no. And someone was was and this. Uh, I'm not that old, but I sound like it. I mean, someone was was showing it to me the other day, and uh, I have not. I don't think I've ever posted anything because I just don't really know what to post or or how. I guess the the whole idea is that it's kind of very raw, uncut, like spur of the moment, life through your eyes. Whereas I'm more of a retouch edit like frame the perfect uh ins- you know I- i'd say i'm more of an instagram person than a snapchat person yeah, me too i my understanding of snapchat previously was that it was uh like a texting service where everything was ephemeral and nothing gets saved and everybody ha you can send dick pics uh, but people did use it for that. But then, like, teenagers could use it and send, like, love notes to each other and know that they're going to be disappeared by the next day. And that I, that made sense to me, and I felt like I understand what this product does, and I'm not a teenager anymore. I have no, I have no need for it, so I didn't know. But then I've heard – now it's more like a social network. And I see what turned me on to it was you – know, you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yes. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk has been raving about it lately and he's been saying that he hasn't been this excited about something since twitter circa 2007 and he really was i do remember that's when i first met gary and gary was huge on twitter in like 2006 2007 said this thing is going to blow up it's going to be huge everybody's going to be on twitter and he was right and so that him saying that this is how he feels about snapchat made me think well i i should sign up for this and see if i can figure it out and so i did and there's a part of the process where it's like do you want us to you know notify you know here's people you know if from your address book do you want to follow them and i did and you're you're not the first person who's asked is this really you (laughs) because it i guess it seems a little surprising that i would sign up for snapchat well it was also under the name of the site and not as 
as your name. Which oh, like, right. And that was because... Uh, you I, might be a little late to get the Gruber name on uh, yeah, I couldn't get I couldn't get it, and all the variations on Gruber weren't there and i also had the uh, the notion that if i do if it does become a thing maybe it would be more of a you know daring fireball thing than a personal thing yeah it actually would not be uh you know it's kind of like uh periscope in the same way it's like here's a kind of unedited view of of life maybe you know from the wwdc press bullpen or something like that yeah that's cool but i didn't even get the right daring fireball name either right oh really I think there's I like know. I had to put like a dash in it or something. I don't know because some I don't know who the shitbag is, but some some jerk has daring fireball. <laughs> like that can't possibly be legit. Like whoever it is stole it from me. Well, did you see uh, on Peach? Have you used Peach yet? Yeah, I'm on the Peach. I'm on the Peach. Uh, someone has uh, uh, Casey Johnston got uh, P Marka, so she's <laughs> peaching it up. Is she really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is she masquerading as as uh is she I don't po- I think just the username. Yeah. I actually haven't looked at it in a couple of days, so the peach is really weird, I think. I mean, I'll, so what happened for anybody who missed this and trust me if you did, you you're not really missing anything. It was like over the weekend, I think it was over the weekend, but it, within the last few days, all of a sudden everybody on Twitter is talking about a new social network called Peach. And in fact, the fact that I just tried to get my name on Snapchat and couldn't. I I do have this habit where if I hear of a new social network, even if I think there's a very low chance I want to do it, I'll quick sign up to try to get a username that I want. And so I signed up for this Peach, and it's as best as I can figure out. It, it number one, I don't quite get it, but as best as I can figure it out, is it sort of like Twitter, except that instead of getting a timeline, you have to go to each single every single person you follow individually to see what they're up to. <laughs> And it it's a poor idea for a social network implemented in a uh, a very poorly made and designed app. Like the buttons in the app don't you, you you tap the button and there's no visual indication that you've tapped it. There's no highlight, and and to make it even worse, nothing happens sometimes. And then you tap it again, and it's gone because whatever it is that you tapped to do before, it took three seconds and then it you know went away. It's a very very shitty app. It's My- interesting. It's, I mean, it, it's actually, you know, as Twitter uh, starts to add more, I don't know what you would call them, formats or something, media types to Twitter, this is kind of like, you know, going a giant leap ahead of that because you can make drawings, you can make animations, you can add photos. Um, but the timeline is weird. It's not a timeline of posts, it's a timeline of people. So one of the more interesting analyses I read basically said, um, you know, you're, you're incentivized to just post as much as possible because then you'll always be at the top of the timeline. And, you know, you won't be spamming people in the sense that they'll see 20 of your posts in a row, but, you know, you'll always be the person at the top of the timeline and that might get annoying. I don't know. It's, uh, I don't think it's worth talking about much more. No, let's not. As with any new social network, most of the posts, well, not most, but many of the posts are about Peach itself. Yeah. So we'll see if it gets beyond that. It, what's interesting about it is that it, it's made by one of the people who made it is the guy who made Vine. So, right. uh, you That's know. the only reason it got any kind of traction because Vine is a real thing and there's real people who are, you know, using it happily and it's, it, you know, 
but I don't think this is a vine. Or unless it they somehow quote unquote pivot and invent a new something new that you can do with this that's different than what this is. Yeah, it's always dangerous to say like there's been too many of there's been too many social networks because I'm sure someone said there were too many search engines um, right before Google came out. So, you know, who knows what's actually going to happen. But it seems like this is one of those things where it's just not different enough to really justify putting too much time and effort into. Um, maybe it'll catch on among some, like Path was huge in uh, Singapore or something or oh yeah, Indonesia it, or wherever. Right. Um, but, yeah. We'll stop talking about Peach now. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll stop talking about Peach and start talking about our next uh, sponsor, and it's our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. It's the all-in-one service that lets you handles everything you need to have your own website. They do the hosting. They have the templates that you can use to start. You just start with a website that is gorgeous, but... And they have templates for all sorts of different types of websites. If you're setting up an online store, they have a whole bunch of store designs to choose from. If you're setting up a portfolio, because let's say maybe you're a designer and you want to create a new portfolio site uh, to show off your work, they've got examples of that. It's really, really easy. And it is so far beyond any kind of website, even if you're thinking that you're going to have to uh, design it or program it from scratch you know, the old fashioned traditional way, the the stick shift way, if you will, the manual transition where you're writing the code and designing it and doing the HTML or maybe the programming. You really ought to think about do, trying it first with Squarespace, even if you can think of it as a prototype. And I, for a lot of different types of sites, you'd be very surprised uh, just how far you can go. And you may not need to build a website. You really can just use Squarespace. Um, I was actually looking around with it recently. I actually, because I thought, you know, these guys sponsor the show all the time and I haven't looked at it in a while. And I know they had a major new version last week. And so I tried building just to, you know, just spend like an hour building like a little store design. And I was blown away by some, how, how, how much improved it is from the way Squarespace used to be, just how much more it feels like you're working in, even though you're in a browser doing all this stuff, it really feels like you're in like a, an app, like a design app uh, doing these things. Really, really impressive. Um, where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to squarespace.com and you'll get a free trial, no credit card required. And then when you do pay, when the free trial is up and you want to keep the site and keep it going, just remember the offer code Gruber, my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, and you will get 10% off your first purchase. Uh, that could be a lot of dough because if you pay for a whole year at a time, uh, the 10% can apply right to that. So uh, my thanks to Squarespace. Build it beautiful. One more thing I want to say about CES. Now, now having been twice, all the and you know this was a different Apple that back then it was it was smaller and you know still I would say maybe a little more mysterious. But all the so-called rumors and like calls for Apple to headline CES and all that stuff. That, that was just completely idiotic like even more even now more in hindsight than it than it seemed then like there's no way that apple is going to waste their time trying to like have any sort of signal among the noise at ces there's absolutely no reason for do, for them to do that and just like even halfway believing that 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 could have happened back then just seems completely foolish now i miss macworld and uh 
I really do. And its heyday was great. And it was for exactly what you said, though. It's that it it was a way. The main reason was just the fact that everybody who covered Apple or worked in Apple related things was all in San Francisco at the exact same time, which was great. Uh, and then secondarily, it was great. It was actually great. So every year, I'd, I'd find one or two things, new companies of making products that it, you know I didn't know otherwise. And even in the internet era, when that became a lot easier um, to find, you know, little companies that are from oddball locations around the world, um, it still always happened. Um, but I totally understand why Apple pulled the plug on their involvement in MacWorld, which was way less involved than it would have been if they'd gone to CES. Right, because MacWorld, especially the San Francisco one, which was the last show, was local to them, and it, it the entire show revolved around their ecosystem. But I totally understand why they got away from it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if like someone took a meeting with someone from CEA or whatever, and and you know heard them out. But there's just no, you know, a- Apple can command as much attention as it as it gets on its own. Why would it? Why would it participate in something that's going to be super noisy and not focused? Yeah, just... and and the thing and Apple, I think, actually was upfront about this. I don't. I think when they stopped, they they you know publicly said we're not. This is the last time we're going to do a, a MacWorld keynote. Um, it was the year that uh, it was the year when Steve Jobs fell ill again and ended up going on a medical leave and. He, you know, he, they announced like his medical leave. I forget. It was like December, January. Um, but they said that, you know, very messily. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was handled very poorly, probably because of Steve, you know, that it was his, his desire for, for privacy was in direct conflict with the company's need to, you know, they, they, A, they were giving a keynote at Macworld Expo in early January and B, you know, the, they have certain public obligations regarding the executive leadership. It was all very messy. Um, it's all, you know, obviously it's moot point now. But I remember, though, that the it was announced that, A, Phil Schiller will be giving the keynote at Macworld next month, and, B, this will be the last keynote Apple ever gives at Macworld Expo. So they announced that before the Macworld Expo, which was, in some, some people took that as sort of a dick move because it kind of did cast a, a funereal feel to the whole thing. Because, like, every, I mean, they were, you know, they still had at least two more Macworlds after that, but everybody knew at this point that it was going to be a, a greatly diminished Macworld without Apple. But on the other hand, I kind of think, I don't know that it was a dick move pre announcing that because I think it gave everybody a chance to soak it up and it maybe gave people who were like, eh, maybe I'll go, maybe I'll not go. It, it motivated them to, yeah, I better go. Yeah, that was the only year I went and uh, it, was, it was really cool to be able to see it once. Uh, anything else from CES? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I could go on forever. It was it was really interesting. Um, it was fun. It was exhausting. And uh, next year you're coming, so we can so someone will play blackjack with me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you didn't play any blackjack. How do you not find time for blackjack? Because it would be like two a.m. and I hadn't. You know, it's like oh, I guess I should go to sleep. Um, <laughs> See you. Because the people, you know, the people I was with, they either just want to keep drinking or I don't know. I actually don't know. And there's like some, I think it started ironically, but there's like a lot of the tech writers play pie gal poker, um, which I also didn't get to play. We were going to, and then I got separated from that group and I don't know if they ever did or not, but, 
Um, anyway, next year. See, so, that I, I'm starting to get a sense of how this could happen and why it's inexplicable to me. How you can have like a four-day trip to Vegas and not end up playing blackjack. And it sounds to me – and I know you. I think this is probably true. It seems to me that the difference is that you have at least a lick of common sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was – Yeah. No, I, I would have liked to. Uh, it, and like last year, I was like, "Oh, I'll just do it the last night." And then in the last night, it was like one a.m. and I I couldn't even put a uh, hundred bucks on the Cubs to win the World Series last year because I ran out of time before the sports book closed. So. Oh, did you get it in this year? No, or are, they, or are they not taking? Are they not taking those yet? I don't know. I, I'm sure they're taking them. It. They're. I don't know. I guess they probably could win this year. I didn't think they were gonna. When I didn't think they were going to be even close last year, so oh, they're going to be. I think they're going. They're going to be good. They're going to be good. Are they going to be the National League favorites? Maybe, could be because it's going to be Cardinals have gotten worse. Cardinals have gotten worse. And the Mets, come on, the Mets. That was a fluke. The Mets have gotten worse already. The Mets have already lost uh, lost talent, and I don't think they're going to sign Cespedes. They they Mets will have pitching, and that's it. And then the Dodgers are in turmoil. Right, nobody. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen with the Dodgers, and they're probably worse because they they lost uh, what's his name, the pitcher. Oh, uh, what's his name? The guy who used to be on the Royals. Yeah, I forgot. So anyway, I think your Cubbies are going to be. I don't think you're going to get good odds. This could it be could the year. Ha- where, yeah, this, that's the thing. This could be the year where you get your you get your Cubs win the World Series ticket, and you end up winning like six hundred dollars on a hundred dollar bet. Not even. I think it's like four to one or something wow. right now. I think last year it was seven to one. That just doesn't it. seem right. It seems like the, even when the Cubs have talent, the Cubs ought to have. There ought to be the like Cubs. A, yeah, they're the Cubs. There ought to be like a they're the Cubs discount on the, yeah. on the tickets. In the same way with with the Yankees, that even when the Yankees look like they're not in a good spot, you know, they don't really have it. They, the Yankees still should only be like eight to one every year, even if they have no chance, because they're the Yankees. Like you shouldn't really, you should not be able to make a lot of money by betting on the Yankees to win the World Series. No, that's practically cheating. Right. <laughs> that's why I love them. It's like betting on the house. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, so anyway, basic gist of it: you go to you go to CES, you go two days early or so because you want to go hit these the keynotes and the the announcements, and then you you book two days. Uh, you you stay there for two days to do the show floor. Can you do the whole show floor in two days? Uh, you'll you'll never get you'll never do the whole thing. You have to we, pick and choose. We we even we didn't get to talking about more than one tiny portion of it. There's the whole convention center, which is like the north, central, and south halls, each of which have multiple zones. And then there's the west gate too, which is something else. I don't even know. I I didn't even go to the west gate. I what don't the hell know. What, is that? It's something else. It's like next door. <laughs> I've seen the sign. I, I don't even know what it is, though. Is it like a hotel casino? Yeah, I think it's kind of a junky casino hotel with its own convention center. <laughs> and part of CES is in there. Yeah. I think it's so crazy. I, I, I'm going next year. Yeah, you should. I should let's, book it. Let's do it. All right. Stay somewhere nice, though. Well, I only stay at the Wynn. Oh, well, all right. That might be a uh, pricey. Might be a price. <laughs> might be yeah. <laughs> when I looked... Well, when I looked at it, it had sold out, but I think before that, let's, all right, we'll figure out how to do this early so that we don't get screwed, but. I wonder what the, I know that they sell, I know that the Wynn and Encore sell out because they're, A, they're the best place on the strip, and B, it's, I 
well, there's no ideal location, but it's about as close to ideal as you can get because it's right across the street from the Venetian and the Palazzo, which is where the, 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 that's the casino that's connected to the Sands Convention Center. Yes. And so my guess is that the, the you know, the first, like my hotels, the first night was, was $50 and the second, the third oh, and fourth shit. nights were $350. Wow. Yeah. It's like a huge, like, just the difference between pre CES and where did I mean, you st- where did you stay? Oh, well, I stayed. I had to stay at the Flamingo. <laughs> oh, that's right. You told me that. You did yeah. tell me that, right? And the Flamingo yeah, is yeah. not not that great. Oh, no, a no. Pretty good location. It's yeah. It was well located, and it's on the monorail, so that was fine. It was fine. I mean, I stayed in the new tower, and it was fine. But uh, hey, maybe next year by CES we'll have the the Las Vegas city notes, so you'll know where to. Uh, where to actually hang out. Yeah. Well, I know where to hang out. Oh, you know where to hang out. Yeah. I, I should probably write the Las Vegas City Nuts. Did you see I relaunched it? No. You've been, you've been offline a lot lately. Yeah. If yeah, you go I have. To, If you go to citynotes.co, uh, you know, as uh, I think I, you know, talked about it on the show before, but the, the idea was that I was making these apps where um, if you go, if you're traveling to a city and you just want a short list of like the cool stuff where your cool friend would take you. And not the lame touristy stuff or like you know fancy silly stuff. Um, did I would just have this list for you? And and I did a New York one and I had a San Francisco one. And these were iPhone apps that I was selling in the App Store. And um, it was you know long story short, it was cumbersome to make and uh, and update these apps as apps. And it was also not really you know the paid app model has uh, as you know. Is not a great business model for for certain types of uh, of content. So it's a website now. It's citynotes.co. I have a Tokyo and a Paris list up there. And so if you're going to those cities, check them out. And I'm working on New York next, and then probably Los Angeles. And um, you know, it's working as a website. It's like free for me to update and keep current. And uh, we'll see what happens. But interesting. That's I my little side it. project. Yeah, I'm, you know, we'll see what. We'll see what happens with it, but uh, I just relaunched it about a month ago, and so far, so good. Excellent. Uh, what else is going on? Do you, how about this? Do you want to talk about this El Chapo? <laughs> did, I haven't read the Sean Penn thing yet. Did you? Uh, I did, but I didn't finish it, and I, it's it, it's like the stupidest thing. It's like I couldn't remember which device I was reading it on, so I, I haven't gotten back to it. But I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I really, really liked it. I'm going to read it tonight. Like I think it's one of the best pieces written by a non-writer. And there's it's funny. It seems like maybe Rolling Stone I, – I, I'm not sure what the backstory is. And I don't know how much of this – if it's out there. And I just don't know because I didn't finish the article yet. Like he, he visited him in October and the article's coming out now. But it, it seems like maybe they felt like their hand was pressed when the authorities took El Chapo back into custody and they wanted to publish it. But it, it it's clearly a very light editing pass you know in terms of it it doesn't read like your typical rolling stone feature uh a lot of sean penn's personality is is infused in the prose and i think he did a hell of a job there's there's certain touches that as a writer like felt like 
you know, a little over the top. Like it's a little awkward in certain phrasing. But for the most part, though, I really enjoy the visceral nature nature of the prose. I, I think it's just a tremendous read, and it's just such a crazy idea. You know, it, it, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by Sean Penn. You know, he just does things that other people it just never occurs of to do. Right? Remember, like with. Uh, with the hurricane in, in New Orleans, uh, what was that hurricane? What was it called? Katrina. Katrina. There's like, there's Sean Penn, like in a rowboat, saving people, you know, getting them off their roofs. You know, like, what the hell is Sean Penn doing on a rowboat in, in New Orleans? Yeah. How did How did he get there? How do you get to a flooded city if you don't live there? You know, it's not like he's, he just went, uh, you know. What a crazy idea to have is I'm going to go meet the most notorious drug kingpin in the world today and write a story about it. Yeah, and a lot of the criticism has been that uh, that El Chapo – Chapo or Chapo? Well, I, I guess in, in, in Spanish Chapo. you'd say Chapo. El right? Chapo. The, he was given editorial control essentially, that he was allowed to um, you know, make changes or at least – uh, reject the. It was submitted. To, the agreement was we'll we'll submit to you, you know, a manuscript, and if you have objections, we will take your objections. Right. So a lot of people are saying, and and whatever they said that he didn't make any changes or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But a lot of people are criticizing that as, uh, you know, essentially, a, you know, a press release from El Chapo, uh, written by Sean Penn, submitted to Rolling Stone, which is you know historically a journalistic organization and they just go and run it. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, uh, that's kind of the time we're in where a lot of places are just publishing directly on medium and, uh, or on their websites or something like that. If you look at Elon Musk, he does the same thing. So I don't, you know, I, it would be a tough call if I were the editor of Rolling Stone. I think that if I were the publisher of Rolling Stone, I'd be very, very excited about this because it's certainly gotten them a lot of attention and probably a lot of web traffic. And um, but it's interesting. Like, do what do you do? You allow that? What do you? Here's my take. My I, and this is really what I wanted to talk about. It was the, that journalistic angle. I don't have a problem with it because. Right up front, that's how the article starts, is in in italics, like it's an editor's note, it explains that situation entirely, which is that part of the deal for this entire thing before it started was an agreement that the article would be submitted to El Chapo's people for their approval, and it was, and they didn't make any changes. And so to me, the the, the what makes it okay is the fact that they disclosed that in very clear language right up front. And that they secure, like, so the Al Chapel people said, we want to approve the article. And I think the Rolling Stone people said, okay, we'll do it, but we're going, we we're going to explain what was approved. You know, we're going to explain that this deal was in place and we're going to say whether or not you changed anything. And so to me, obviously that's less than ideal. It'd be great if the Al Chapel people just said, you can write whatever you want, but obviously they weren't going to let that happen. And so... I, the world is a better place that this article exists than if it didn't. Like it, it's not like they had the option to do it without that arrangement. And right. The fact that it was disclosed to me makes it acceptable. Like I think the people who are objecting to it on a like it's failing a certain purity test are being. A lot of them are jealous that they. Didn't I get definitely the story, think so. I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the truth about this, there are no rules. It's not like there's yeah. a law or something that says that you know every. 
every article published anywhere must be vetted by something or, or something like that. I mean, uh, so whatever. Uh, if, if if you're jealous that your publication did not get the scoop on El Chapo from Sean Penn, um, I guess that sucks. But it is interesting. I think it's I think it's cool. I I want to read it. Uh, I saved it. I'm going to read it. Uh, I I like the idea of getting kind of raw writing from non-traditional writers. I think that's really and that interesting. Is, that to me is exactly what it feels like. And in terms of, well, the, the argument that this could just be a press release from El Chapo, obviously that's a risk. I mean, but you just read the article with an open mind and judge for yourself. And I, having read most of the article, would say it's definitely not the case. It doesn't whitewash over anything. It's really just sort of a first-person narrative. You are there. This is what it's like to try to get to this guy. Um, story. Uh, to me, it was just a good read, but I think you have to keep an open mind on something like that. And I also think that there's a certain sanctimoniousness among the professional journalists who like object to this on, um, you know, this is not the way it's done by serious publications. Uh, is that those publications that have those rules? Like, if and I'm sure a lot of them, you know, really do have it codified. You know, like uh, 60 Minutes does not allow the sources of a show to see it before it airs um that's fine that's you know it's fine to have rules like that and it certainly does protect you from you know accusations that you're you're currying favor with your subjects or something but those publications obviously they miss out on an awful lot of stuff that they're that these you know these rules and traditions keep them from from getting exactly and self-publishing like you said like how much stuff is going on medium these days um the the world where you know in the old days, they they could they could take a stance like that, and the only people who could really get a story out were the ones who owned a printing press and had a you know million or two million circulation newspaper or magazine. Uh, you don't need that anymore, right? So anybody can anybody can handle two or three million people reading their site if they publish it on WordPress or Medium or something like that. And so they don't you know they don't control the the means of distribution anymore and they're sort of holding on oh you know get me to the fainting couch they they let the subject pre-approve the story it's this, this is you know I've, I've got the vapors somebody get the smelling salts it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah it's fascinating uh dave weiner actually wrote a good essay about this uh, making many of these same points and and i totally agree i mean listen i went to uh you know quote-unquote professional journalism school. I mean, that's what my undergrad college was. And I don't care. I think it's great that uh, that, that people can self-publish now. Um, there's, there's certain things that I won't do because that's the job I have, but that's fine. I, you know, as, I think the best thing you can do is be very clear about what happened and what didn't happen. It seems like that's what they did here. So. Right. Right. I feel I and I Dave Weiner has been thinking about these things since the invention of the web in the 90s and he's a really I think he has a really interesting perspective on this stuff. And um I think it is to make a long story short, I think that institutional journalism the capital J journalism, like you said, like going to actual journalism school and working at a at a longstanding, you know, traditional publication, they've made things more complicated than it really is. They've set up this this like 
uh, written and or unwritten list of rules of how it's done. Whereas the truth of it is, it lowercase j journalism that anybody can can conduct is to me it's fundamentally about getting the truth out there whether it's true facts or whether it's like in a lot of my writing truly what i believe and think my opinion my honest opinion about how things are going that's what it's all about and that's it and so part of the truth could be like writing a disclaimer that says the subject of this story had the following demands and that's the truth the truth is we had this arrangement and now you know it yeah, let's be let's be honest. Like the people with all the rules get stuff wrong all the time too. So it's exactly, not like, it's not like they lead to perfection, right? And you know, and I I love the New York Times. The New York Times is one of my favorite newspapers, or it is my favorite newspaper, and it's a source that I read. I, I read something in the New York Times every single day. Uh, but you know, and they they exemplify that sort of traditional journalism and they've had some absolutely terrible things in the last few decades, you know, with the Judy Miller, uh, her reporting on the lead up to the Iraq war. And, uh, who was the guy they had? The serial fabulist. Oh, uh, Jason, Jason, uh, Hmm. Well, whatever his name was, Jason, yeah. uh, you know, Jason Bourne. No, uh, it was a J A Y S O N too. Oh, right. Uh, Jason Blair. Yeah, Jason Blair. So they had a reporter on the staff who it turns out had, had serially fabricated news reports. Uh, uh, you know, again, those rules are not a protection against things like that going wrong. And fundamentally, in both of those cases, the problem is that it wasn't the truth that was coming out. You know, what Judy Miller was reporting from her sources in Iraq was not the truth and it had led to disastrous you know circumstances and the Jason Blair stuff it didn't really lead to any kind of disaster like the Iraq war but the, the whole problem is that it greatly diluted the credibility of if it's printed in the New York Times it's true and then all those David Pogue reviews <laughs> <laughs> I miss Pogue well he's I don't see his stuff anymore I, I, no. I it occurred I was just talking to somebody about that uh that I know he's still doing this thing at Yahoo uh I just saw him recently too. Oh, I saw him in New York when I was getting the uh, my iPad Pro review unit. He must have been oh, like, cool. Right, he must have been like right before me. Um, but I, I so I was going into a hotel while he was coming out. Um, so he's you know he's still dead. But I I don't know why I don't know what it is. There's some kind of you know like uh, tech meme search optimization strategy that the <laughs> yahoo people aren't doing because i don't see his stuff i don't know what i don't know why that is yeah i don't know like now that mossberg is uh, you know not at the journal and is writing for recode and the verge and stuff i still see mossberg reviews you know like they they percolate into my peripheral vision and it's like oh open that in a tab whereas pogues don't i somehow wind up not without any david pogue tabs yeah same Maybe he just needs to tweet more. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, let's take a, one last break here, and I'll thank our third and final sponsor of the day, and it's our good friends at Igloo. Now, you guys know what an intranet is. Intranet is a thing that your company has for internal communication that nobody ever looks at or updates. <laughs> Igloo is an intranet you will actually like because it doesn't look like it was designed in the late 90s because it wasn't. It's really just been designed in the last few years and it is entirely designed around the modern concepts of how the web should work 
everything. It works on all devices. It scales from your phone to your tablets to desktop. And it has features that are modern, things like uh, microblogs. So you could have for your internal team a little Twitter-like thing that's private on your internet, and you can do links and text and stuff like that. Um, but it's entirely private, and it's hosted, and you can access it anywhere from your phone, from the road, anything like that. All sorts of great features. You can have uh, to-dos. You can manage the to-dos, calendars, uh, so many features, and all the features you would want for internal communication on an intranet, they've got it. So where do you go to find out more and get started with a free trial? Go to igloosoftware.com slash TTS, the initials of this show, igloosoftware.com slash TTS, and you'll get a free trial. Go check them out if you have any kind of team that needs uh, an internet. Uh, what else is on the yeah. list? I just want to say that's something I think of a lot is like how how to get your stuff noticed. Um, it's really interesting. It's almost hard to predict who's going to read your stuff. And it's almost uh, – it, it really it doesn't seem to be correlated with how much traffic your site gets even or anything like that. Um, it's It's almost a different kind of science. And I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to crack it, but – it's something that fascinates me because sometimes I'll put a lot of effort into a, an article and it just won't it just won't get read or the other way around like you know something that that surprisingly does really well and sometimes it's you know you get lucky with a headline or a link here or there but um, it really is weird how the web how the web works with sharing and just getting read and who's reading it and and sharing it. I um, I have found that. And I don't know quite why it would be, but to me, in in my career, in the time I've been writing Daring Fireball, one of the epochal moments was, you know, it, it's like like a meteor that changed the, you know, hit hit and changed the world forever, was when Google shuttered uh, Google Reader. Google Reader uh, sh shuttering instantly cut into the traffic that Daring Fireball gets. So if I measure, I don't think it cut people. I honestly don't, I truly believe that the number of people who read my writing on a regular basis, if anything, continued to slowly grow. But in terms of like page views, it was instantaneous and permanent. And the number of page views I get per month is way fewer than from before. And it, it correlates exactly to where Google pulled the plug on Google Reader. And I think my, my, my guess is that uh, a lot of – awful lot of people who read Daring Fireball used Google Reader. And they subscribed to my site. And whenever something new came up, they would go to – you know, click the thing that would go to my website. And I would register, you know, my analytics and whatever would an register as a as a hit. And anyway, long story short, I don't get the traffic I used to in terms of page views. I've never been happier that I don't have page view tied advertising, uh, because that would have been it. Really, it would have hit. It absolutely would have hurt if I if the advertising on Daring Fireball was correlated to page views. And I think it's just that people now more a lot of people check it when it comes to mind instead of checking as soon as. You know, getting you know, treating Google Reader as like a notification system of oh, Gruber posted something, I'll go check it out. Um, and uh, the other thing, and this is where I'm getting at, is that pre Google Reader, I was very, very good at guessing which longer pieces I wrote were going to have legs and which ones weren't. And now I don't. I, I'm often, I often think, wow, I think I hit a home run with this one, and it doesn't really it, it, like the next day. My nothing is, you know, there's no, there's no 
bump. And then like last month, I wrote, I spent an awful lot of time really examining the 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 battery case, you know, like uh, and, and a, an awful lot. Oh, of I remember an awful lot of the feedback I got was, "Why in the world would you spend that much time on the battery case?" And the explanation is, I it's because I could write about it. it, it I've, I found it interesting. I think there were some very interesting things about it, and because it's such a simple little thing, you can fully consider it. There's, you know, you can explore every little alley and crevice and and notion about it. But it it was one of the most popular things I've written in months. I think it I think it was more popular than like my iPhone success review. If That's I crazy. just measure by by page views and seemingly how many new people did it, and I wasn't even the first to write the article, I, but somehow that one really took off, and I, I, I I'm I no longer can predict which ones are going to be popular or not. Uh, speaking of that article, I mean, I still can't believe how how controversial that uh, battery case was. That was. Well, I guess that's. I think that that's why the article was popular. I think that yeah. there, there really are people really have strong feelings about this. I mean, you also went very deep on it. Yeah, I I think what it is too is that there's an awful lot of people who viscerally hate this design. They really do. I mean, they are, are, are it, it. It is like, uh, you know, like bringing up Obama or something. You know, with your your you know your crazy uncle who's a, a Donald Trump supporter. You know, it like it like turns on like a red anger bulb in people's heads, and there some people cannot even talk about it. In a, you know, you would you would think that an argument, a little debate, if you will, over the design of a phone battery pack would be the sort of thing that would not make anybody angry, but you would be wrong. And so the people who dislike it really, really dislike it, and it 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 seemingly it seems to offend them on an emotional level. And on the other side, I think what maybe made my article popular is that the people who either are intrigued by it or actually like it, they can't articulate what why. It's it's again almost like at an emotional level, they're like, oh, I don't know, it doesn't look bad to me. Um, but they are uh, they. I think that they've largely been quiet in public because if you try to take that position, anything other than this design is an abject failure and maybe Johnny Ive is, you know, we ought to investigate whether he's losing his mind. Um, if you take any position short of that, the people who hate it will jump all over you. And most people don't want to be jumped all over. I, me, I don't care. Uh, the only you know, way to, you know what it reminds me of, have you ever seen the Boeing dream lifter? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Just like the, uh, the seven forty seven that they just added a bubble on top of. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. To make it uh, big enough so they could carry the fuselage of another of, of the Dreamliner. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's literally like just putting a bump on the uh, you know around <laughs> around the the seven forty seven. Um, yeah, I think it's funny. I, uh, it reminds me a lot of when a new logo comes out and everyone just jumps on it the first day. You know, this is horrible. I can't believe it, and then no one cares after that. Um, I think a lot, you know and. So much of the design of that thing is how it works, and I haven't used it. I have a six S plus, so I don't need a battery pack. But um, brag, but <laughs> uh, actually, I did need a battery pack at CES. Oh, I, that's I, interesting. Even with the plus, yeah, because the the cell signal is so bad there that I'm sure you're using way more battery than you should be. And uh, yeah, even when even I've never been in CES, obviously, you know, I'll repeat it again. Yeah. But I've been to Vegas many times, and Vegas has notoriously bad in my opinion, cellular coverage. And in addition to the fact that the cellular coverage isn't that great in general, that's just talking like if you're outside or near a door. But 
the, the buildings are these caverns and they're, you know, the Faraday cage aspect of, you know, what it's like when you're covered by, you know, three tons of concrete and who even knows whether, you know, if you're underground or above ground or where the hell you are, you know, it could, it could definitely be a challenge. Yeah. I got one of those anchor packs that's supposedly, you know, big enough to charge a MacBook and an iPad and a phone and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, so I did use that, but, uh, anyway, I don't remember where I was, but it's, you know, if, if you need a battery pack, it seems like it actually works pretty well, which is the whole point. So I don't, I don't know, whatever. I I I, re- I thought you went deliciously over the top on that post, but as you say, like it's a small enough thing where you can really examine it from every angle. And why not? Like that's the whole point of being a self publisher on the web is you could do something ridiculous like that. I the other thing I'm I'm thinking about, and I've I went and bought a bunch of them. Um, but I've always been, and I even said at the bottom of my article, my, my solution to battery challenge days is to have a little external battery pack. But I like the little ones. I like ones that I can put in my other pocket, and it's almost like I don't even notice that it's there. Um, and Mophie makes a bunch of them. But I honestly consider it to be a shortcoming in their company in that they make too many of them. And that one of the things I really, really appreciate about Apple is that if you're going to buy an Apple blank and insert any product there, you can go and, and decide which one to get. And it's, uh, it's I'm an indecisive person and I will pause it, but I never have a problem figuring out which MacBook to buy. I in, Even now at a moment when their lineup is in flux and they still have the old MacBook Airs and the new MacBook One, which is underpowered and... The MacBook Pro. I know which which Mac I want. I want a thir- I want the uh, thirteen inch MacBook Pro. That's the best. That's the one I want. Uh, I find it so hard to figure out. Go to Mophie.com and figure out which battery pack to buy because they not only have different sizes in terms of like, well, here's the small one that'll refill one iPhone from you know throughout the day, or here's a really big one that you could use to charge an iPad and two phones or something like that. Um, but they also have multiple designs. They have ones with built-in cables, not with built-in cables. Ones, you know, the it, it, it's too much. They should be the ones. Who, they're the battery experts. They should design the right design, and then I don't have to worry about it. It's almost like when you go to Mofi.com and pick a battery pack uh, or the bat, you know, external battery pack. You almost have to design it yourself because you've got to. F- figure out do you want in integrated cables do you want to have separate cables do you care that it's that the battery is going to charge by micro usb but the phone is going to charge by lightning so you have to bring two different things at night does it do pass through charging meaning that at the end of the day when you put up next to your hotel bed do you have one thing to plug in and it'll you know the battery will plug fill your phone first and then fill itself up or do you have to plug two different things in because the battery pack won't charge the phone while it itself is being charged they they have all of those options are there for you to consider from just one company and i kind of it, i find it maddening so i feel like i want to write an article and figure out which which is the best one and effectively design it for mophie this is your version of marco's uh, headphone test yes exactly it's exactly it it's my version yeah. of Marco's headphone test is battery packs, except that I'm only going to do Mophie's. And speaking of Marco, Marco recommended one to me personally. Uh, I can't find it here. The other one to check out is Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, which are some ex-Google people who make um, very nice uh, battery and charging stuff. They're the, they're the ones who I also have a four-port USB charger, which I, ca- which I travel with now, so I can 
don't have to bring any of the Apple charging bricks. I just bring this and plug in my yeah. MacBook, iPhone, Apple Watch, and um, can charge something else at the same time. All right, I'll take a look at the Anchor ones. But anyway, yeah, Marco nice. recommended one to me. For, he bought at at Amazon for twenty four bucks, um, and it has built in cables. And I'm I'm a built in cable fan, so you don't you know it's just one thing to put in your pocket. And the son of a bitch and thing broke. <laughs> I did. I hadn't even gotten past the point where I was just testing how you know, like how how quickly and you know, how, just testing a whole bunch of different of these battery packs on my phone every time I'd let my phone go down. I'd only used it like three times, and I'd never even taken it out of the house, so it wasn't like it it you know was dropped or anything like that. It just the lightning port on it just stopped working. So I think there's a sort of you get what you pay for aspect in there. And I also found it curious that Marco, of all people, was the one who recommended this cheap one to me. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe an imposter. I don't remember. I don't remember the name of the company. It was weird. Oh, here it is. It's underneath a pile of shit on my desk. Uh, <laughs> I hate to throw the company under the bus, but it's a Volt Ready. V o l t r e a d y. And if you go to Amazon and look at the Volt Ready, you'll see what I mean about these integrated cables. And they're super, super thin, the cables. I mean, it's it's so much thinner than the lightning port itself. And I, you know, it don't, I think that's probably why it broke. I think you need, like, a good thick cable. Have you installed uh, iOS 9.3 yet? No, I have not. I haven't either. I'm not, uh, I'm not in the beta cycle. What's, what's different about it? Uh, the, the... The like fake uh, the Sherlock flux or whatever that thing is called F flux, so you can get the uh, warmer colors at nighttime, so it's easier on your eyes when you're about oh, to go to sleep. Interesting. And um, there were all those new features for education, like the multiple user mode and that kind of stuff, which you assume is going to be part of iOS 10. Yeah. So, yeah, so everyone so. can. No, but it's know. still it's still just in beta, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 I thought maybe I really out to lunch. No, now, I'm kind of done. I, I I do the betas of the major new OS over the summer, but that's mainly because I know you know my phone's a year old. I'm getting a new phone anyway, so if it goes belly up, and it's usually there's like major major features and I want to get get a hold of them. But for stuff like the minor ones, I usually don't do the betas. Yeah, same. Have you uh, uh, have you been using the Apple TV a lot? Uh, every day, uh, every yeah. day. Have you used the game controller yet? Yeah, I have the game controller. Uh, I don't use it very frequently because I just I'm, I just don't play video games. Um, yeah, but I, I, I like bought it. one to to hopefully play games on, and I used it the first day I had it, and then I haven't used it since then. <laughs> yeah, but that's really just me. It's not like that. I couldn't find some games I liked. I found a couple games I really liked, but uh, it just never occurs to me to play video games. Yeah, me neither. I thought I would though. I, I thought so too. I think that of all the things, like if I time traveled back and talked to my like 10, 11, 12 year old self, I think that I would have lots of good news to tell young John Gruber. And I think he would be very happy about his future. But I think the, of all the things he'd be most surprised by is that I would tell him that I, <laughs> you're going to grow up and have the financial ability uh, and the flexibility in your daily schedule to own and play any video game you want for as long as you want, practically speaking, and you're not going to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think... That, yeah, pretty much. 
I think that it, my like twelve year old self would instantly suspect that whoever this guy who does kind of look like me, uh, and it it was credibly well cast to play the person who's going to prank me and tell me that it's me when I'm forty two. Uh, is obviously full of shit because there's no chance that if I could spend four or five hours every night playing cool video games that I wouldn't be doing it. I downloaded one uh, for the Apple Watch, which, you know, that was another one of those things where they were like, oh, Watch OS 2 is going to be, you know, it's going to be really helpful for games because they'll be able to run directly on the watch and also be able to use the digital crown as a controlling mechanism. And... um, no, not fun. One of the games was like a almost like a card game type thing, and it was just too, too weird. And the other one was like Pong type thing, and it was just so jerky that I kept I saw lo- that one. I kept I saw- losing because I either got the same one or I downloaded a similar one. And I think maybe there might be a, mo- a bunch because if all you have is the crown, Pong is a very obvious concept, and it was totally. terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Yeah, I did not enjoy that. As 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 we head into the new Apple Watch season, and I, I suspect that they're going to announce it early-ish this year, um, you know, at this event that they're supposedly having in March, um, I do think we'll get a new watch. Uh, and as we, you know, what do we think of Apple Watch? I, I, I have to write this piece, I do, because I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, but the bottom line, I think I think it's very clear in hindsight that they should not have had any apps at all for the first Apple Watch. I mean, maybe eventually it'll be an app platform, but it's clearly not ready for it yet. And slow apps is way worse than no apps, in my opinion. And to me, even now, even you know, with WatchOS two and and everything, it's also still incredibly inconsistent. Where if I go to like a, a weather app on the watch, sometimes it'll just spin and spin and spin until the screen goes off. And if I go to the exact same app, like Dark Sky or something, and take my phone out of my pocket and go to Dark Sky, it works instantly and has all you know all the data I want, you know, the information about the weather that I was looking for. And so one, it doesn't take long to be psychologically conditioned to because you don't trust that it's even going to work at all on the watch. It doesn't take you very long at all that you just instinctively go for the app on your phone. Totally, especially with. Uh, the this S six S phones being so fast, and also the three D touch shortcuts. Like it's now, you know, when the watch launched, to me it was really helpful to be able to quickly access something without reaching in my pocket and taking out this giant phone. Um, but now the phone is so fast that, and the Touch ID uh, unlock is so fast that it actually is faster now again to take my phone out than to try to get anything done on the watch right uh, it's just it, it's just and that doesn't mean that the you know that the watch as a whole is a failure but i feel like what the this first watch was good and interesting for is just the ambient stuff you know the tracking the health you know tracking your stuff doing the workouts and whatever you configure to be shown at a glance on your you know without even doing anything is you know and that's enough that's enough to make it a product i think that the idea that they had to make had to have apps and their first one was wrong and i think it's kind of funny because they famously had no apps on the first iphone and it turns out that the phone was absolutely a, you know probably the best platform for quote unquote apps that mankind has ever created it's like the pinnacle of apps as the central premise of how you're going to use a device um 
didn't even have it at first. So if the if the phone could get away without it at first, I don't see why the watch couldn't have. And I think in hindsight, the watch should have. Yeah, I, I wrote kind of a whatever it was like seven month review uh, about a month ago now, and that was you know similar. I mean, my my high level conclusion was I still use it every day and I still really like it a lot, but I haven't. I'm not using it for any new things than I was at the beginning. Um, I'm still basically using it for the same things as I did when I started. So in that way, it felt stalled in the sense that we were promised this kind of unlimited platform and no one's really taking advantage of it. Um, whereas in reality, like I'm very happy with the things that it does well, the fitness tracking, the, um, you know, so again, I'm always surprised how useful it is to have the time in front of me, uh, especially with the, my phone now being so unwieldy. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and a few very other basic things. So I enjoyed I'm, that. I'm, I, I've enjoyed that from other people too. I know Marco was saying on his podcast, either the last episode or the last one I listened to, where he he's like for Christmas got a mechanical watch because he's you know the, I, he never wore a watch in his entire life, but just the convenience of having the time on your wrist. It, turns out that's actually pretty cool. And yeah, <laughs> all of us like me who've been wearing watches my whole life. It's like, come on, we've. <laughs> why did you have to be told this? I know. I, I had a you know I had I was the kid with the nerd watch in school right. with the the calculator or Casio or whatever. But I forgot. I forgot all about that. Honestly, like the temperature is cool to have. Yeah, uh, that's the one thing when I wear my my traditional watch, my regular watch. Uh, the one thing that I miss every single day is that I expect to be able to look at my wrist and see what the temperature is outside. Yeah, and every I like time it. It, it it it's always it. I mean it's it's. It's uncanny how I could go days without wearing my Apple Watch, and I still, as I'm heading out the door and deciding which coat to put on, I look at my wrist, and I'm like, oh, it's not going to help. Yeah. Are you uh, are you Apple paying with it? Yeah, I do. When I have it on, I, I Apple pay. And that's another thing, too, is because uh, the supermarket where we go is a Whole Foods, and they take Apple Pay. And I instantly, every single time, I whether I'm wearing my Apple Watch or not Apple Watch, I, I put my wrist up to the kiosk. <laughs> nice uh yeah i do i mean i almost every day i do that so it is i find and i thought so i thought it would be true back in may when i first got it and it turns out it's very true it is terrific in the east coast winter to have an apple pay thing that you don't have to fish out of your pocket when you're wearing a coat and layers of clothing and stuff gloves too right and actually you can go straight through the sleeve you don't even need to uh roll up your sleeve you just Double, double click on that double button, click. and it, and the NFC will go right through your shirt. Yeah, it is interesting. I'll tell you it, it, one thing too is I never use the single click on that contact thing to contact people. Only by accident, right? And so I really feel like in hindsight they got that wrong. Like single click should have been Apple Pay, and double click should have been jump to contact shortcuts. At least for me personally, because when I do want to contact somebody, like if I want to um, text my son i'll do it via siri I'll, I'll long press the other thing and just say text jonas whatever it is i want to text him because you have to dictate the the text anyway so why not just initiate the contact from the voice too it seems yeah i i, I assume they probably thought people would be doing the drawings and the touch stuff more than they do like i, I haven't done that stuff in months no only when somebody gets a new apple watch yeah right <laughs> In hindsight, Basically. I mean, it's just one of those things where, and I kind of, it makes me a little worried, you know, it's a worrisome product in some ways about Apple, because it makes me wonder what 
what made them think while they were using it themselves that this would be useful? Like, it just seems to me that if they spent as much time thinking about it as I have in the first six months while I wore it, why didn't they come to the same conclusions I did? Like, I mean, that's a good, the whole idea, it was a great idea. I was very intrigued by it. Um, you know, the, the idea that you would have these favorite people and one touch away from just sending, you know, your heartbeat or whatever. Fabulous idea. But then I feel like once you actually have it on your wrist and you can do it, it turns out it, it doesn't, doesn't really stick. I think that it's going to be some of the most interesting things are going to be what they change based on what they've now learned from, you know, millions of people using this thing. Um, and that's the software as well as the hardware. I think we've already seen they realizing that uh, the sport is kind of the is the main watch. So yeah, um, there's more colors now. We'll see what else changes with that. But well, uh, the, I said the software changes. Yeah, I know you said it was like the best one. Yeah, I, I think, think it's the best one. And yeah. I, I think all of the worrying that people did. I think this is to me one of the most interesting things about it is all the worrying people did that that the common person is going to get shortchanged and gets this cruddy aluminum one and people it's only rich people who can afford a thousand dollar stainless steel one who are going to get the nice one it's actually the other way around the people who bought the four hundred dollar sport one got the best watch i really do believe that yeah i love mine and so i'm just super curious to see what uh what they change software wise too yeah, I am too. I'm. I've, and I don't. I, one of the the software group has really gotten good at keeping a little. You know, not much leaks out of Apple software these days. So I, I think we're in for a surprise. I don't think that you know. Who knows? I mean, you never know what Mark Gurman's going to figure out. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I think there's a good chance that we'll be surprised. So any guesses we have are actually real guesses. I if I you ask me right now, what do I think they're going to do? I'm going to guess a lot of health and sensor related improvements and this one might be more of a me just wishful thinking but i really 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 would like to see them do something a lot smarter with where the aggregate health data is you know making health center more of a here's everything that we know about you type thing like to me it's way too separated with the activities is just for the watch stuff and not you and you know what i mean right and you know i have six months or well i have eight months of aggregated uh fitness tracking like okay what what higher level trends can you tell me yeah um you know uh okay when you i don't know when you work out on the weekend you do something better during the week i don't i don't know just like give me some more other than that uh, page of all the rings which is kind of cool but was cool, you know, the first couple of times I looked at it. And it is nice to be able to go back and kind of brag about the day I walked 27,000 step, steps at CES. But be, it would be great to actually get some more useful information out of that uh, page. Yeah, I think that if there's if they're paying attention to how people re- seem to be using the watch in the real world, it's going to be a lot more about quantifying, you know, and helping you make sense and organize your the data that the watch knows. And like I mean, the other thing too is if I'm not wearing my watch but I have my my phone with me, the the minimal compared to the watch, but the minimal tracking that the phone does should be easily combined with the watch, you know, to create an overall picture of like my activity and stuff like that and where I've been. Um and then the other thing I think I hope that they're working on is I think that they should really work to make it smarter about 
whether it's watch faces or the glances or or locate you know but something so that it's just smarter about showing you what you want to be looking at when you look at your wrist yeah there's plenty of context that knows about you know where i'm at what i'm doing that it could i would even trust it to shuffle the complications for me somehow yeah uh based on the context you know if i'm at the airport show me the travel complications if it's nighttime show me you know certain things um and i I know that it would be kind of obnoxious to have to program the logic behind that so maybe you wouldn't be able to program it but to me that would be there's so much more context that uh that they could be integrating into a lot of the decisions about what they show you were there a lot of um android watches at the ces not in a really noticeable way. Um, I mean, last year it was so the the whole watch thing was very novel, and of course there was the famous Apple Watch knockoff, and yeah, a lot of the booths I guess had kind of Android watches, but I think that uh, it didn't really, it wasn't like a huge thing. I mean, like Samsung had one, but I think their only major change was just the color. Yeah, uh, and then there was that uh, Fitbit. Yeah, thing that looks a little like an Apple Watch. Put it like a hexa- hexagonal. It's like they yeah. cut off the corners. Yeah, I kind of dumped on it. I looked at it. It's fine. I mean, whatever. If you're if you're trying to buy a two hundred dollar thing or whatever, it's uh, and you want a Fitbit that also does a couple other things. The advantage that Fitbit has is they they can get away with an uglyish design. And quite frankly, I think that their thing is ugly. It, it it's certainly uglier than the Apple Watch. And yeah, they can get away with it doubt. because people their their audience is primarily looking at fitness tracking. And so if you're the thing you're most interested in is fitness tracking, uh you, therefore less than great aesthetics, can, you can get away with it. Whereas Apple Watch, its primary thing is it's supposed to be a good-looking watch. Yeah, and I think the whole point behind this is that they want to become a more universal device and get away from, you know, the biggest risk to Fitbit is that fitness tracking becomes an app on a more universal device as opposed to a separate, uh, you know, thing that you carry around. Uh, the, the way that calculator is now an app on a, on a phone or a flashlight, you know, you, no one's carrying a little mag light around anymore. It's, right. it's your it's your camera flash. So. Uh, you know, I, I could see why they would want to kind of go after that more mainstream, universal, more useful market. But I, I just don't know if they're the company that has the the software and, and the ecosystem that they can get enough people using it. I, I actually, mean, they're still they're still they're selling a lot. People are buying a lot of Fitbits. They're, the brand has uh, awareness and people like it. But I don't know. I think they're doomed because I think the the they're not going to be able to stay far enough ahead to 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 stay ahead of the eventual good enough fitness tracking that's built into other devices you know including yeah I, I i i think right before right after they went public i did kind of a trolley post where i said fitbit's long-term uh, stock chart revealed or something like that yeah. and it was or the long-term sales chart revealed and it was it was the 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 shipments curve of the ipod it was mm. like you know yep this this is a single purpose device that has basically become an app on a more general purpose device. I, I, so. Over the holidays, we were at uh, Amy's mom's house um, for something. I don't know. Some at some point during the Christmas New Year's thing, and um, it must have been Christmas. And uh, and her mom had a, a LED mag light, 
and I was just blown away by how awesomely powerful the 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 flashlight is. All the flashlights we have, we, and we have a bunch of them from Maglite. I've always been a fan of their stuff because it's so well made. But ours are all the old incandescent thing, and I was like, wow, it's like I have somehow missed this revolution, and I need to upgrade all our flashlights. So I I went flashlight shopping for myself. And it's so funny how it's like Maglite has all this, so many slogans on a bunch of their smaller ones where it's like, you know, yes, you really do need a flashlight. Yes, you can, you can have a flashlight that's so much better than the one on your phone. And it's like, if you're telling people that they, if you're just reminding them that they still need to buy a flashlight, you're, you're in trouble. Like, yeah, it is exactly, it mirrors exactly what the consumer camera companies started saying, you know, five or six years ago about, yeah, you totally need a $200 point and shoot camera. And it's like, no, you don't. Go to any tourist location in the world and look at what people are using. They're all using their phones. Totally. And the flashlight is right there. It's like, you know, who knew? Who? It's like to me, it's like something I would have never predicted. I mean, and Apple obviously didn't predict it because they were a little late to the game at making it uh, something that you didn't need an app for. But I use my iPhone as a flashlight probably at least once a day, every day. Every day, yeah. It's it's crazy to me. But it's awesome. Right. But it's, you know, it, it, to me, in the same way, I'm not saying Maglite's going out of business, but they're, they're, they're going to go, their business that was selling little $10 ones that you keep at your desk is gone. That's, and it's never going to come back. The only lights, flashlights are going to sell are the, the big, serious ones that you need, you know, where you really do want, like a, you know, a two, two D cell flashlight. Yeah, and th- I mean, and just to bring it back to that Fitbit, I guess that was the criticism was that it wasn't going after the serious fitness market because it doesn't have a GPS. Right. Um, you know, the the marathon runners aren't using that that model, um, and I don't think it's going to be enough of a an Apple Watch to beat Apple or even the Google uh, watches at at being a more general purpose device. So, yeah. anything else you want to talk about this week, Dan? Um. Not really. <laughs> there was, you know what? What, about, what? what do you want to talk about? Well, I was going to say there was. Uh, uh, it comes and goes, but it's it, it, it. You know, I I don't write about finance generally, but I'm a, I'm somewhat intrigued by it, and I don't think that the company is Im- immune to it. I think even if you're primarily interested in Apple because of their products, as I am, that you you still have to consider their like stock price and their you know quarterly financials because you know they're a publicly held company and it we're at a point the whole market is down quite frankly but apple is down further than the market and they're trading at a ridiculously low price to earning ratio at the moment and it brings it just brings out the crazies i mean you cannot make this up i mean this guy trip chowdhury is is almost comically it really is hard to believe that he's not a parody that there's somebody out there who made up the name and you know like the macalope and it's it it's a fake analyst who doesn't even exist and for years now he's been getting away with this and getting quoted and he keeps saying more and more outrageous things and everybody just keeps quoting him that you know putting the word analyst in front of your name is somehow this magical credibility badge uh, he literally said last week he called Tim Cook a bozo and called for him to be uh, not fired. <laughs> he called for him to be demoted back to chief operating officer. Amazing. And, and says that uh, John Rubenstein should come back to the company and become the CEO. Perfect. Which is <laughs> it's not going to happen. 
That is, is not the way it works. Maybe co-CEO with Fidel. I guess, yeah. Bring, bring yeah. them all back. And that Angela Arntz is a nitwit or something. I forget what his word was. And, you know, she's got to go. Meanwhile, yeah. the Apple stores have never been more popular or more successful. It, I it, mean, it's crazy. You know, uh, there, there is a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say pessimism as much as just kind of people are not quite sure if if iPhone sales are going to grow this year. And I don't know, maybe that doesn't matter to the average person. Uh, it it does matter to Apple as a as a growth story right. um, and growth certainly is important in any company. And, you know, sure there are, there are cycles where things flatten out or maybe they decrease a little and they start growing again. Uh, and it, yes, Apple, you know, may, relative to the market, that's one thing, but there are companies that whose stock performed great last year. Uh, I believe Amazon was one. Amazon, of them. definitely. So, Amazon. It seems like everybody is really, really caught on to Am, and I think deservedly so. I mean, but but just little things like the way that Amazon, uh, by most you know the the accounting I've seen, uh, uh, got fifty one percent of the online holiday shopping. That's a, a, an enormous number, and it's sort of a magic number too. You know, like. Fundamentally, if they got forty nine percent of it instead of fifty one percent, it's you know it's the same. It's a rounding error, and probably well within the the margin of error for however the the outside group guesstimated the the numbers. But fifty one is you know over that fifty percent line, and that's a magic number. And you can see why that would fuel you know investor confidence in their stock. Yeah. So in the meantime, you have you know these the, this huge uh, group of analysts who try to guess every quarter how many phones Apple's going to sell and what their revenue and profits are going to be. And um, and what's been happening recently is that they've been reducing their forecast for, for iPhone sales and for, I think, also for revenue. I don't, I don't have the, the, the um, trend line in front of me. I actually have access to a pretty... What I thought would be an interesting chart of like how the estimates change over time, but they actually change so little that it's just kind of a flat line. It's not very... It's not actually a very interesting chart. Um, but we'll see. I mean, yeah, this could be, this could possibly be a year. And by the way, this has been known for a while. Like, I think I wrote about this in, I would say July or even April of last year that this coming year could be the year where the company doesn't grow very much if at all. Um, and, and we'll see. I mean, you know, it, it certainly does matter for some reasons, but it also seems to be creating an opportunity for a lot of people to blow things out of context and be right. There's a, s- silly about things. There's a very interesting story here, uh, I think, but it's all nuance and it requires, a, you know, to be. Let's be serious about this. That that this company, the biggest company in the world, is not going to implode. It's <laughs> like we're talking about growth stopping, not that the iPhone is going to. The, it, it, the way some of these people are talking about it is as though, yeah, I mean, here's a literal headline The iPhone slowdown spells doom for Apple. I mean, that's an actual headline in an <laughs> ostensibly serious business publication. It's ridiculous. It doesn't spell doom. Um, but it certainly is interesting. And I think it's almost, it, it, if you're realistic about it, you have to admit that just back of the envelope math would suggest that. The basic story is off, actually very easy. iPhone sales were suppressed for a, a, at least a year or two, it seems, because consumers decided they liked bigger phones, and the iPhone didn't have a big phone. And it takes Apple at least 
at least two years to to make a change like that because so much you know because of their we only do one major new design a year and we bank you know bet the bank on it they're stuck with it for two years um and when the six and six s came out or the six and six plus came out last year there was a it satisfied the demand but b it was pent up because a lot of people had waited because there were and there were rumors i mean everybody know anybody who like us knows casual people who are like hey is it true that apple's going to come out with a bigger phone and we're like, well, you know, give your standard. I don't know, but it certainly seems like it. That's what all signs point to. And they were like, cool, I'm going to get that. And they're waited for it. And then they did, and they had unbelievable sales. I think that the sales so far, from what we know, that the 6S and the 6S Plus are are matching that. But they, the question is, are they going to grow even further? And they may not. But the thing that's also very obvious is that at this point, it, it – they're getting to the point where they're running out of people on the planet who can afford iPhones. Right. Which they're maybe actually going to help out with the, you know, second, uh, hand me down subscription phones. Right. Um, this year, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, at this point though, they really, uh, they're reaching the point where I really think that to, to grow, it has to be at the lower end by widening the number of phones, you know, lower cost phones that are being sold that are iPhones. Because at the right. high end, I really do think they're at the point where uh, they there aren't any, there just aren't untapped people left. Yeah, you, there are a few Google employees with Nexus phones, and then that's about it. Um, you know, and that's where other products come into play too, like the watch or the Apple TV. But those are both so early in their life cycle that uh, there's, you know, even even Apple Music, which we calculated is on a billion dollar revenue run rate, like billion dollars is not that much to Apple. Yeah. So, how many um, how many watches do we think that they sold? The last time I ran after last quarter, my number was around five million, just based on kind of the changes in that other products thing could be a little more than that but the christmas quarter is probably going to be you know on another level so right we'll know in a few weeks i mean just making up a completely random number i, I would guess that they probably moved like five to ten million last quarter alone but who knows i have no idea right and each one of those that eat the average selling price is easily guessed at around $500 because overwhelmingly most of them are sport and the sport ones are $400. And then, you know, just enough of those steel ones would raise it up to around 500. So if they, every million that they sell is $500 in revenue, that's what is that? So basically a billion for every 2 million phones, their watches. And so they've, you know, they've built in year one, a multi-billion dollar business, which is pretty good. And I think it's about the best. Yeah. But if you're Apple, it's not going to really drive much growth, especially if you have to offset, you know, the iPad declining and, um, you know, the Mac is, the Mac has been up, but it sometimes falls and that sort of stuff. So yeah, my guess is that the iPad is stabilized. I think that the iPad is going to settle in as a nine to ten million a quarter device, in the same way that the Mac has long been a very very stable product. Where, but it, but it's actually grown in a very nice, but conservative way. Where it, in the old days, you know, like ten, fifteen years ago, um, it, it was like a million max a quarter was the magic number. Good quarters were over a million, and bad quarters were under a million. And 
it's slowly but steadily grown to the point now where they're doing like three, four, four and a half million max a quarter. More. Is it more now? Yeah. What was it last quarter? Well, I'm going to pull out my uh, my spreadsheet here. So give me 10 seconds. But let's see. Last quarter was uh, 5.7. There you go. Well, I'm behind the times. So they've grown past yeah. five. Which but is, I believe, been, a record. Right. Uh, All-time record. You know, and I just think, I, I noticed, though, I noticed just the other day I saw a guy in a Starbucks, uh, and he was working on an old, remember the white MacBooks? Remember the ones oh, that yeah. you could either get white or black? And he was working on one of those. It was in beautiful shape. It was absolutely, <laughs> it really was. It was in it was totally clean, and it it the screen looked great, and he was working on like, a, I couldn't tell which app. It was either Excel or Numbers. It was clearly a spreadsheet. Doing work on it, and it looked great. And so I, I no surprise if you know that he's still using it. But that's what normal people do: is they buy a they buy a MacBook or a laptop and they use it until it breaks. And if hey, this is a two thousand nine iMac we're using, so we're chatting on right now, right? And I feel like the iPad. You know, my my theory on the iPad is that it it sold in these twenty million a quarter numbers because it was this sensational new thing that met a demand that no product had ever met before, and lots of people decided, hey, I could use one of those. And they weren't replacing anything. They were adding it to their life. And so it was way out of proportion to the what could be expected in a normal quarter. Um, and that now it's settled in. And it settled in, I think, roughly like somewhere around two times the number of Macs they sell. Yeah, And that that's yeah. the natural number of iPads to be sold a quarter. Yeah. And hey, I just bought an iPad too uh, off eBay just to use as a screen. So... The old ones have value too. Yeah, and again, I don't think people get rid of them until they break. No, I, I had to stop using my original iPad because it was still on, I think, iOS five, and the uh, <laughs> the app we were using to watch TV on uh, needed iOS seven, I think. Right. So, got an iPad two, and now I'm solved. Uh, so I don't. Know. I think it's. I think that this the the the. The hyperventilating over this is ridiculous. I do think it's interesting, though. It's interesting to say what what does Apple do now that the iPhone has reached peak iPhone, right? And much like um, you know, when when they mess something small up with the product, people love to jump on it. So um, you know, imagine the whole company collapsing, uh, or you know, not collapsing, but actually just not growing like like crazy for a few quarters in a row. Um, but yeah, what do they do? I, I don't, you know, they've, they've done a few things and, uh, we'll see. Well, and I think, I, I think in terms of anybody who's looking for growth, I, I, I don't see how the watch could have done better in the first year. And honestly, I've given the numbers it's gotten. I think that they've sold outside the number, I, I, outside how well it deserves to have sold. Like, I don't think it's that great of a 1.0 product, but it's actually remarkable that they're selling as many millions of them as it seems like they are, um. And I think that's great, and I think it's only going to get better. And they do really in the last few years. They've really, with every product since the iPad, they they do an amazing job in like the first two or three years of greatly improving the product. I mean, the iPad went from the iPad to the iPad two, which was way thinner. Then there was the iPad three, which was weird because it went Retina, but it got thicker and heavier, which was a weird sort of. Now you have this awesome Retina screen, but it's also thicker and heavier. And then ever since from that point onward, it's just gotten crazily thinner and faster and lighter. And so I expect the exact same trajectory with the watch. 
with a very aggressive annual schedule. Yeah, I'm excited. I've I've liked mine a lot more than I thought I would. So, but it's uh, still a long way to get between now and you know 100 million units a year. So, the other the one last thing I thought of from CES was the the and it sort of ties into the what does Apple do now and it sort of ties into my thing about maybe they shouldn't have done apps on the watch was a I think it was Dieter Bone for the Verge had an article about Tizen which is Samsung's not Android their own homegrown operating system and that maybe it's going to do okay even though it never you know nobody there's no app developers you know targeting Tizen Um, and that's sort of the problem that windows exemplifies is that at best you know usually there's just one dominant platform that that developers write for and in the old days it used to be the windows uh then it became on the desktop then it became the web and nowadays it's you know it's split people still develop for the web but on mobile people develop for ios and they develop for android and if you're trying to be the third you're out of luck because there's just too much to ask so windows doesn't really get apps and Tizen, you know, gets, certainly gets less than Windows. Um, but that maybe, you know, I guess what they, what he was writing about was these Samsung watches that are running Tizen. And it occurs to me that as we move past the phone and get into these other devices, platforms going forward and operating systems, apps may not need to be a part of that. Like, and having your own operating system that you inside your company completely control and you can have your engineers optimize it. You know, if what you really want to work on is uh, low energy consumption, well, you can make that the highest priority because you have your own operating system. Um, Or if you want to do like what Apple's done with metal and make this, you know, incredibly custom and high, high performance graphics pipeline. You can do that, and you can bake that into the operating system at whatever point where it makes the most sense for your desires because you control the operating system. Um, I just think that a lot of these things going forward that are going to become computerized, they don't need apps, and therefore it doesn't matter if, you know, if Samsung can do a good watch and it runs Tizen, but there's no third-party apps for it, that may not matter at all. And where I'm going with this is, to me, the car might be the same thing, where what you want out of your computerized car has nothing to do with third-party apps. Right, or or your, I mean, so Tizen is also being used, I believe, in many of their televisions, as well as the new fridge with a tablet built into it, and a bunch of this stuff. And you know, you can laugh, but if every if every gadget is eventually going to have a screen on it, um, you know, your washing machine or something, and the value of the apps, the logic is mostly running in the cloud, and and what you're um, interacting with is just a, you know either a notification or a you know just a button that basically says run this this app in the background or respond to a, a notification or something then absolutely uh it doesn't you don't really need all the ui development or you know a separate uh app running on the device did you see the uh the summon feature for the uh teslas you know, I, I feel dumb because I actually had heard about that before, but I didn't realize it hadn't been announced. Um, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. It's and, cool, and that's the type of stuff that I think that's this is the revolution that's coming to the car industry, and it has nothing to do with apps, right? Like the fact that you can't get apps for your Tesla does not change anybody's desire to buy a Tesla at all in either direction. Whether you didn't want one before, or you do. The fact that it's not an app platform is irrelevant. It's the totally. fact that the car can do it. Apps are just the wrong concept for a car. 
They really are. I mean, I know that there's certain things like maybe you would want something app-like for music, but it doesn't have to be apps. You just want to get music in your car. And yep. so the summon feature is really cool. It's like you can you tell your Tesla that you're ready to go to work, and the Tesla will like open the garage door, get outside, and be right there at the curb ready for you to uh, get in and drive. And when you get home, you can just get out of the Tesla in front of your house and go in the front door, and the Tesla will go through the the nitpicky detail of carefully driving itself into your garage. And like the crazy long term said thing they said was like if you if you're in uh, L.A. your car will drive from New York and come pick you up or something like right. that. Right, that's <laughs> absolutely yeah. That you right right now it, it's like limited to a very very near proximity around your house or whatever. But that that you know that the, they've already got it in place. You know plans in place where you'll be able to do it from any distance where there's contiguous land access. So you know you can't make your car magically get itself to Hawaii, but you can yet yeah. But you can go L.A. to New York. Yeah, I I love this. I you know uh, I think that the uh, the the concept of of a car and of uh, transport is really changing a lot. And um, yeah, I mean that's it was funny because CES was literally the week before the biggest car show in the world, but it's there that a lot of these companies were making their big announcements because they're all trying to position themselves as technology companies now and. Um, you know, some some of them are gonna. What I love about Tesla is just that these ideas are so wacky, but then they just release a software update and they're there. Like yeah. the self driving mode, I don't think anyone the week before was like, "Oh, I wonder when my Tesla is going to be able to drive itself." And then <laughs> Elon Musk is like, "Here it is, boom!" And I think they even have to dial it back now because it was like a little too crazy. But yeah. uh, well, they. I love it. I. I did I mention this on the show? I forget if I did or not. I have such a terrible podcast amnesia, but that I I got to ride in a, a self-driving Mercedes-Benz. Oh, cool. Uh, and it was amazing. It's truly, truly amazing. Um, Mercedes flew a, a bunch of, not a bunch, a small number of riders out. And I don't know why they picked me, but I didn't question it. Uh, I just Where'd went. you go? Uh, um, Sunnydale? Sunnyvale? Mountain View? Oh, okay. Somewhere out there. Somewhere out, you know, it's out in the valley. Down the street from Yahoo. Um and got to ride in a self-driving S-Class. We went out in the highway, and the car drove, did everything. It, you know, it was amazing. And it huh. works. It absolutely works. And it's not perfect yet, obviously. But and it, but if anything, all of the imperfections are on the side of being conservative. It, it is, it's a very heavy breaker. <laughs> it breaks very, very <laughs> aggressively. Um, we were heading up like an on-ramp to get onto a highway and ter- go high-speed driving. And we were it was later in the afternoon, and we were heading right into the sun. V- you know, and, and basically, just talking to their engineers, all of the things that make driving hard for humans are the exact same thing that make tr- self-driving hard. If you have trouble seeing, the cameras on the car have trouble seeing as well. And it was really a lot of glare. And it braked going up the ramp because the glare was so bad that it couldn't really even see. It was like the, the status indicated was just like can't tell what's ahead therefore it's going to stop and it was you know it was an unnatural thing that a human wouldn't have done um and a couple of other times it broke a little bit too aggressively but for the most part i i think you could easily if you didn't tell somebody i think you could and blindfolded them i think that you could easily the the cars they already have today could easily fool somebody in thinking that a human did the driving that's great 
It's, yeah, I'm, that's going to be awesome. So one of the questions I asked them was, um, do they anticipate, and that they're they're obviously solving, they're solving, uh, you know, really, really fascinating AI engineering problems, hardware, software, sensors, the, the braking systems, and the software, of course, to drive all this. Um, but they're also solving legislative and regulatory problems at the same time. And do they anticipate, like right now, you can, I said, you, I could go buy a Mercedes Benz. Every, any Benz I drive off the lot, I can instantly go and uh, greatly exceed any speed limit in the United States at my own discretion. Will I have that ability in a self-driving car? And uh, I was told quite, quite bluntly, no. There's almost no chance that it would be legal for them to make a self-driving car that will exceed speed limits, which is kind yeah, of I weird. And it's going to drive the sort of libertarian mindseted people, I think, a little nutty. But their explanation was, but why do you want to drive faster now? It's because you want to, you know, you're bored, you know, and if you're, if you're not paying attention to the road, if you're just reading or watching TV or whatever on your way to work, you're not going to care that it takes five minutes longer. Totally. And I, I think I also saw something similar with the Tesla um, thing where it can it's programmed that it could maybe go, I think, five miles over the limit or something like that based on where it is. I'm not sure. I may be making that up, yeah. but I, I thought I read something about that. And then, of course, if you if you need to go faster, there's the uh, flying car that, that they had at CES, too, the scary quadcopter with a, a person in it. Did you see that? No, I did not. Oh yeah, that's the. Uh, it was like a human-sized drone. Oh god! So great. So we got that to look forward to. Uh, the the one thing talking to people at Mercedes is they were very. They you know, it, it's a. They are very confident in their ability and that they are going to have world-class self-driving cars. I mean, I wrote in one that already was real, the real deal. Um, but they're talking. They 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 divide this the stages of self-driving cars in like four levels and like level one is like the stuff that we already have. You can get on the market today where you can like set your car to maintain distance from the car in front of it. And that staying, you know, and that Tesla has like a feature where now, you know, you can turn on a thing and it'll, it'll do the highway driving for you. Um, and that, but part of stage one is that stage one means you still have a human driver who is, who is expected to be able to take over the control of the car in an instant, like hands ready to take over at all times. And that's where the industry is today in terms of like what's on the market and that they were absolutely, it was like a, they considered it almost seemingly, this wasn't what they said, but I could, reading between the lines, it seemed like they were angry and it was like a setback to the industry that when Tesla first made this feature available that jackasses were setting up GoPros and showing themselves like reading the newspaper while their car drove. Like yeah. there was a guy who got in the back seat of his Tesla while it was on like <laughs> like a highway in California, and that it's so that's not that's not you're not supposed to do that, and it somebody's going to do that and a disaster you know they're going to have a catastrophic accident because of it, and it's going to you know the, the fear is is it's going to make people say we should ban self driving cars before they even get a chance to 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 do it. Like who would do that? <laughs> what kind of a yeah? And it really is funny. It's like it's just like some random Yahoo with a with a, a Tesla is going to ruin this for everybody. Yeah, I think if you go on YouTube and search like Tesla fail, you'll find some people who were very surprised by <laughs> what they were recording. But uh, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, and and 
I'm sure we've seen other tech examples. I mean, it's, it's not too dissimilar from what we're seeing with uh, Airbnb and Uber, where you know there's the company that wants to kind of skirt the way that things have always been, and then reality, which will fit somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I just think bottom line for Apple is that until they get to their car comes out, which is even if everything goes swimmingly, it's going to be you know 2020, 21 or something like that. Uh, I think I don't I don't see how they can get it out before 2020. Um, but who knows? But it, even if it's, if I'm wrong, it's not going to be that much earlier. Until then, I don't see how they can do anything to create like a totally uh, uh, grossly inflate the revenue of the company, right? Like watches and and other things that they could do in the interim. The, the watch is a good business, but like you said, like a billion here and a billion there doesn't move the line for Apple very much. Right, unless it's the kind of thing where almost everyone with an iPhone gets one too, but then it's still smaller than the iPhone. It's still an, it's basically accessory I, level. But I so. think that the I think that the Wall Street's desire for Apple to do that is just magical thinking, and I think it's good as somebody who wants the company to continue doing good work. It's good that they're by all appearances are not obsessed with finding another iPhone. You know, the, I think that they knew going into it that the watch was not going to be like the iPhone, and they did it anyway. And I think that's as it should be. I think it's you know the 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 phone is like a once in a generation opportunity. Yeah, I don't I don't think anything can be like the iPhone at least in the next you know it, at least knowing what we know today about the world. I don't think there's going to be another product that is like the iPhone for Apple. Right. It's period. Just, it's just a perfect storm of everything you know that it's this device that everybody wants one and that you know they have engineering advantages they were at, you know just couldn't and the be. price is hidden the right re, you know all right. that stuff right so. right right that nobody even knows what they're really paying for it and they just the industry just keeps finding new ways to further obfuscate just how much you're paying yeah <laughs> Amazing. I love it when you tell somebody that, like, a, like if you just buy a no contract iPhone, that it's you know eight or nine hundred dollars, and they're like, "Well, I would never pay that," yeah. but yet they have an iPhone. It's like, you, trust me, you're paying it. <laughs> Anything else? That's good, I think. All right, Dan Fromer at uh, Quartz. That's QZ dot com. I'll, I'll make sure to uh, throw in a couple links to your CES stuff. I, uh, di- I didn't do much, so I'll send you. I'll send you what I did, but. All right. uh, which was nice. <laughs> well, it's always good talking to you. Yeah, from Dome on Twitter. From Dome on Twitter and uh, citynotes.co. Uh, .co. .co.